police and prosecutors here in Las Vegas treat domestic battery cases very seriously. Even on a first offense, they will often seek jail time, classes, fines, and to brand you with a criminal record. But the good news is, here at Las Vegas Defense Group, we've had tremendous success helping people fight these cases. The other party may have exaggerated or outright lied to the cops in order to be vindictive. You may have acted in lawful self-defense or the whole incident may have been an accident. We invite you to call us 24-7 at 702-DEFENSE and tell us your story. We'll see what we can do to get your charges reduced or dismissed. Fujiano came in a rap game pulling millions of views that even got him a once in a lifetime chance to sign the Gucci Man's label 1017. But Fujiano could have lost everything. With doing over three years in prison, he was even involved in a shooting during one of his live performances and being involved with over seven attempted murder charges that could have cost them life in prison. This is Top Trend TV and this is the criminal history and biography of Fujiano. Kwame Brown, aka Fujiano, grew up in the Greensboro area of Georgia, a small town with a population of less than 4,000 people. Growing up with five brothers and four sisters, the difference between him and them? Fujiano hopped in the streets at an early age, at only the age of 14, and this was the first time he got locked up for a robbery gone wrong, unsure of the details, but he did a little bit over a year in juvenile hall. And after Fujiano got out, at the age of 15 was the first time he ever met his father face to face. But that didn't stop him from having a life full of crime and violence. Moving to Athens, Georgia, at the age of 16, Fujiano met one of his brothers at this time and started to do home invasions and robberies in wealthy neighborhoods. But all of this robbing and stealing would catch up to Fujiano only at the age of 20 because he got locked up for a home invasion gone wrong, leaving him in prison for a little bit over three years. On December 2013, on a Monday afternoon, two alleged burglaries were arrested by Athens Clark police officers to a report of two men acting suspicious in a west side neighborhood. A witness called 911 at about 1.15 p.m. to report that two men were dropped off by a red car on Lake Overdrive. 
then disappeared behind the residence, police said. An officer stopped the car on Lake Forest Drive, while the other officer spotted two suspects jump from the window of the home and took off running down Lake Overdrive, according to police. They were arrested after a foot chase in the near middle school off Tallahassee Road. After questioning, police arrested three men including Fujiano with burglary, possession of burglary tools, and obstruction of law enforcement. The driver was 17 and was charged with burglary and alteration of a license plate, police said. Plus, the burglary was interrupted before anything could be stolen. Fujiano went to do three years in prison for this burglary. He says he was writing a lot of poems throughout that time after an inmate told him he should do music after hearing one of his poems. He says he was even trapping in jail, getting out at the age of 24. And when Fujiano got out, he began to take rap more serious, going back and forth to the studio consistently. And after doing some songs and seeing his true potential, Fujiano decided to take it to the next level, doing a concert contest for $10,000. And Fujiano ended up winning the contest and got signed to a label named Authentic Empire Music Group, ran by an artist named Boom Man. Without further ado, Fujiano, come get your money. Come on, Fujiano went to drop his biggest hit of today, named Molly, and he was talking about his baby mother at the time while he was mad at her. And this song today has over 57 million views. Then Fujiano went to drop Trapper, which has over 4.6 million views. And after that, he put Lil Baby on the song for a remix. And that remix today has over 17 million views. And all of these views and the new style he had brought the attention of Gucci Man. And Gucci Man ended up signing him around March of 2020 for 1 million. Does. But if you get through discovery and say, there's only evidence in support of this version of the story. There is no evidence in support of the other version. Then you move for summary judgment. You say, I don't need a trial. I win right now on the facts and the law. And the court can resolve it without there being a jury. The vast majority of cases are not resolved by trials, even though that's what is visualized in the popular media. That's less than 2% of the cases are resolved in the federal system through trial. 
Most are resolved on pre-trial, what most people call technicalities, but the things that we've been describing, as you're going to see, especially as attorneys, are not technicalities. They're not technicalities if you're the defense lawyer. It's the way you can win for your client without getting into the merits. And you may not want to get into the merits if you have a client who did what they're being alleged of doing. But using all these procedural maneuvers is the main mechanism that defense attorneys use to dispose of cases. And it's very effective because plaintiffs, lawyers, make mistakes. So if you're going to be a plaintiff's lawyer, you need to master these things so you're not making those mistakes. You get it right to the right place so your defense attorney is not going to have any choice but responding on the merits. So that's why this is, these aren't just technicalities, they're very important to master. So that's summary judgment. If summary judgment doesn't happen, then you go to a trial. I don't cover trials in civil procedure. Some professors do. The main way that trials are discussed in the civil procedure context is about the jury trial right. So the trial part of civil procedure, to the extent that you cover it at all, is not going to deal with trial practice or trial advocacy. That's its own course you'll take in the later years if you're interested in that. This deals with, well, when do I have a right to a jury? When do I not have a right to a jury? How big does a jury have to be? How do we pick a jury? Jury verdicts, instructing a, a jury, challenging the, the verdict of a jury. Those are things uh, that deal, uh, are covered in the trial part. Then you have post trial motions and these are places where you can say uh, we've had this trial I presented my evidence, the plaintiff presented their evidence in front of the jury but the plaintiff didn't really prove its case so I should win, you shouldn't even give it to the jury that's judgment for as a matter of law or the jury comes back with a verdict and it's ridiculous, the jury says yeah the plaintiff was right but instead of 100000 we're going to give them a dollar. Well, if the evidence that they accepted shows that the damages are much more, the judge can say, well, that shocks the conscience, to use the language uh, in the case law. A dollar is not an appropriate amount, so I'm going to order a new trial. We're going to have a new trial and start this over. So you can have new trials. Uh, you can have relief from judgment. There's all these different post-trial motions that you can lodge after a trial has happened. Then you have an appeal, and everyone should be familiar with the concept of an appeal. All right, now we're done with the trial court. So I want to take this up to the next level, to the circuit court, and raise different errors uh, that, were, uh, uh, that occurred in the trial court and see what happens. You don't go to the appeal to relitigate the facts. The jury has already made its determination on the facts. Couple final issues after appeal. You've got enforcement. Most of us, I don't think, cover enforcement. I don't cover enforcement of judgments in civil procedure. But once you have a judgment, it's not self-executing unless the defendant voluntarily says here. But if the defendant is resistant or they are they have assets in different places in different jurisdictions that are hard to reach. You're going to have to initiate a new action to try to collect on the judgment. That would be a separate enforcement 
action. The final topic, which most of us cover, is called preclusion. And preclusion, I alluded to it earlier, and that is the binding effect of a prior judgment on a future case. So let's say in this situation, the defendant doesn't do this. They don't sue the, defend the plaintiff on a counterclaim for $50,000. Okay, well then the defendant wins, plaintiff loses, plaintiff collects nothing. Now the defendant later wants to come up, out and say, okay, I'm going to go to court now and I'm going to sue you. So this is case one, and this is case number two. Defendant won in the first case, but sought no affirmative relief, so the defendant does not have to pay this. Well, now I'm going to sue you in state court for $50,000. Can the defendant do that? The answer is no. This is preclusion doctrine. This is claim preclusion, or something that you'll learn is called race judicata. And that means... I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. People who get convicted of Nevada crimes may be able to apply to the state pardons board to get their prison sentence or parole period commuted, which is the legal term for reduced. Here are five key facts about commutations of sentence. One. Commutations are granted on a case-by-case -case basis, and not everyone is eligible. Two, defendants should consult with an attorney about all their possible legal options to try to reduce their sentences. Three, defendants can obtain a commutation application from the Nevada Department of Corrections. There is no fee to apply for a commutation. Four, Anyone in the general public can give input to the Pardons Board about whether a particular defendant's sentence should be reduced. If the Board commutes a defendant's sentence, the Board will notify any crime victims by mail as long as the victims provide a written request and current mailing address. And five, commutations are different from pardons. A commutation reduces people's remaining criminal sentence, whereas a pardon forgives people of their past crimes long after they finish serving their sentence. Depending on the case, pardons can also restore people's gun rights. Commutations do not restore gun rights. If you or a loved one is facing criminal charges in Nevada, Call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE for a free consultation. The attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group are here to fight for the best resolution possible in your case. NRS Section 199.120 governs perjury, which is making a false statement under oath. This could be you're sworn as a witness to testify in a courtroom uh, and you make a false statement. It could be a statement that's made at a deposition. It could be a statement made in an affidavit, or it could be a statement made in a financial statement where you are uh, providing information and there's language at the conclusion that says you're making the statement under penalty of perjury. 
a, a person will falsely, uh, maliciously accuse another person of rape. What are some of the motives for that sort of, of behavior? Well, there can be many. Uh, I represented uh, a defendant in Las Vegas who was having an ongoing flirtation with a co-worker. Uh, actually, he happened to be the boss. She was his employee. But I had witnesses who all testified that they had seen them engage in conduct, you know, flirtation, and that there appeared to be some kind of, you know, sexual tension between the two of them. She was married. At some point in time, they had sex. Thereafter, she complained and said that it was rape. Why would someone make a false allegation? Uh, a married woman might, might feel guilt or shame that she succumbed to, to temptation. And then in order to try to rewrite it, I mean, the mind can, uh, I think it's, it's not uncommon for, you know, the subconscious perhaps to, you feel guilt, you feel shame, so you rewrite the story in your mind. Instead of, uh, I felt... Uh, some passion. I, I gave in to the passion. I wanted to have sex with him. It was, oh my God, I'm, I'm married. I can't be doing this. Wait a second. I didn't choose to do this. He raped me. So I think, and, and this was a case uh, where the jury found my client not guilty because they believed that she was consensually engaging in the sex. Um, and I think she was motivated uh, to fabricate the allegation to try to preserve her marriage thereafter. Um, some so she she may have been trying to get attention and sympathy from her husband. That's that's a possibility. Or or I mean I, I suppose also uh, it may be a situation where he found out that she had was having an affair and she tried to explain it by saying that she was raped. Uh, or perhaps her own inability to manage her shame and guilt and and. Um, knowing in terms of how she was going to process it, maybe she couldn't keep it to herself or was going to share it with her husband, or maybe she was looking for attention from her husband and to make her feel like she had been victimized by someone. I mean, who you, 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 you can't always know exactly what's going on in someone else's mind, but we do see situations where people will uh, make false allegations. Sometimes it could be that... Uh, a woman is vying for the attention of a man. Maybe she can't get his full attention. She knows that ultimately she's going to lose out and, and not um, succeed in winning his affection or attention. So she could do it out of spite. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's documented. It happens. I've seen it happen. I've seen juries acquit. Um, and from my perspective, I would say that rape allegations in particular are, are difficult cases for the prosecution to prove. A battery on a police officer is a very serious offense, not just related to the consequences you face in court, but the simple fact is, if you have a conviction for this offense, you can probably expect a fairly unpleasant contact with law enforcement anytime you get pulled over in the future. A battery on a police officer does not just include police, but it also includes firemen, marshals, court officers, and correction officers. In order to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, a prosecutor has to show two things. Number one, that the officer was on duty, 
And number two, that the defendant, our client, knew or should have known that the person was a police officer. In a situation where an officer is on duty, in uniform, in a marked squad car, it's pretty obvious. However, if the officer is in plain clothes or an unmarked car, we may be able to argue that our clients did not realize that that person was a police officer. If the police officer involved did not suffer substantial bodily harm, then a conviction for battery on a peace officer is a gross misdemeanor here in Nevada, which means that you could face up to one year in local county jail. On the other hand, if the officer did suffer substantial bodily harm, and that would be broken bones, contusions, uh, cuts or lacerations that required stitches. If the officer suffered substantial bodily harm, then it's a category B felony that carries two to 10 years in Nevada state prison and can actually be up to 15 years if a weapon was used. A battery on a police officer is the type of charge where many innocent people get wrongfully accused. The good news is here at the Las Vegas Defense Group, we have a successful track record of litigating these cases in order to get them dismissed or reduced. One defense in a battery against an officer is self-defense. Many people don't realize that while an officer can use reasonable force and restraint to take someone into custody, he does not have the right to use excessive force against someone. So if excessive force is being used against you, as in all battery cases, you have the right to use reasonable self-defense to defend yourself. If the jury agrees with us that you were acting in lawful self-defense, that would be a complete defense and lead to an acquittal. Another common defense uh, is that the officer is lying or exaggerating. And quite frankly, I think that happens all the time in these sorts of cases. Uh, it, it's often a situation where the, the police don't like a particular suspect, he's rude, he's mouthing off to them. So they will simply add on or tack on a charge of resisting arrest or assault on a peace officer, even if that never happened, just to really stick it to the person and increase their charges. Or we have situations where the police literally will go out and beat someone up for no reason. And fortunately, I think that, that now with, with cameras on patrol cars and cell phones, this is becoming less frequent, but it still happens. And when they bring him to the station, the, 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 the suspect has welts and has swelling and has injuries that get photographed and... They have to take the suspect to get a medical evaluation. And the police have to justify why they beat the person up. So they say, oh yeah, he, he took a swing at officers. He was combative. He, he took a, a fighting stance. And so we were just defending ourselves. And the real tragedy in this situation is not only did the police wrongfully and unnecessarily beat up a suspect, but then they lie and exaggerate and make up phony charges against that subject to paint themselves as the victim and to make the case worse against him. Another defense to battery on a police officer is accident. 
For example, the officer tells you, put your hands behind your back. In doing so, there's an elbow movement. Or the officer tackles you, and in the process of falling to the ground, the officer gets hurt. This may be a case where it was simply an accident, where there was no intent to commit a battery on the police officer. In that scenario, where any contact you had was accidental, you should not be held criminally liable, and we stand a great chance of getting your charges reduced or dismissed. Before we get into that discussion, we are again going to turn to Rusty Burris, and he's going to give us a brief introduction of grouping under Rule D. More counts than any other type of account are going to fall under this type of uh, rule. And that rule says that if counts use the same or similar guidelines, I got 50 counts of drug trafficking, hmm, they use the same guideline. Each count uses the 2D1.1 drug trafficking guideline. And if that guideline is included at 3D1.2D, in other words, if you go into your guidelines manual to 3D1.2 under section D and we list the guidelines that are covered there, and drug trafficking is listed there, uh, then you apply the guidelines as if for a single count application. Basically what you do, you add up the quantities of the drugs, you apply the guidelines one time. They have been grouped together. They're treated as a composite harm as such, because what you've done, you've looked at the harm from each of the counts by aggregating the quantities. You're giving some consideration for all that harm when you apply the guidelines that one time. Now let me get back to the interaction between relevant conduct and Rule D. When you are applying the guidelines, when you are at the relevant conduct guideline, 1B1.3, there is a special provision under A2 of 1B1.3 that states for offenses that are listed as included for grouping under 3D1.2D, those offenses are subject to what we refer to as expanded relevant conduct. And what that means is that the time frame for the acts that you're allowed to consider of the defendant and the limited acts of others has been expanded beyond the standard time frame of relevant conduct. The standard time frame of relevant conduct advises us that any act of the defendant that occurred during the commission of the offense of conviction, in preparation for the, that offense, or to avoid detection or responsibility for that offense of conviction is relevant conduct. However, for these special guidelines that are listed at 1B1, listed at 3D1.2D, but referred to in relevant conduct section A2, those offenses now have been broadened. You can look at the acts of the defendant or limited acts of others that occur during the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan as the offense of conviction. And as you probably already know, when you are applying relevant conduct, if you have, let's say, five counts of drug trafficking, when you go to 2D1.1 and apply that guideline for the first time, 
you are not simply limited to the amount of drugs or the conduct of the defendant that occurred during that first count of conviction. You know that relevant conduct would allow you to expand your application to include all conduct of the defendant, all drug quantities that were involved in these counts of conviction that were part of the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan as that first count. So technically what you've done is you've grouped those offenses before you get to chapter 3 because of relevant conduct. Relevant conduct is allowing you to aggregate all of that quantity before you even get to your decisions about the grouping rules. But what we're going to do now is take a look at the list of offenses that are going to be included under this provision. The thing that's nice about uh, grouping at Rule D is that we do give you a, a list of offenses right there in the guideline and say these are the types of offenses that are groupable at Rule D. Um, also, these are the ones that we mention at, at Relevant Conduct, 1B1.3, that are subject to expanded relevant conduct. That's so right. let's take a list, take a look at the list of the types of offenses that are groupable at Rule D, things like drug trafficking, thefts, money laundering, firearms. Um, you may notice that this list, while, has, while it has a number of different offenses, all of these offenses have something in common. Um, there, is, there is either a total amount of harm or loss, there is some sort of aggregate quantity involved um, or some sort of other aggregate measure of harm or, or loss, or these types of offenses represent behavior that is ongoing or continuous in nature. On the other hand, we also have a list of offenses at 3D1.2D that we specifically exclude from the application of this rule. Um, let's just take a look at those types of offenses, robbery, assault, kidnapping, uh, criminal sexual abuse, these types of things. The one thing you'll notice about these offenses is that they do not represent ongoing or continuous behavior. They actually represent separate and distinct harms for uh, each individual offense. That's right. So let's take a look now at specifically what Rule D says under the guidelines. And what Rule D says to us is that when you are grouping under Rule D... So people are always going to need two things. A place to stay and something to drive. It's guaranteed. Well, people worry about the pandemic. Y'all still getting Instacart, Amazon Prime now. Mm -hmm. Uber and Lyft drivers still cranking up. You know why? Because guys like me give them the cars. <laughs> I love it. What's going on, family? David Chance. I want to give you a special invitation to The Morning Meetup. TheMorningMeetup.com. It is the only organization that gathers every single morning, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and we help you learn entrepreneurship, grow as an entrepreneur, become an entrepreneur, or you just get to be in an environment, a network of all entrepreneurs. Literally hundreds of entrepreneurs gather on a Zoom call every single morning, Monday through Friday, okay? So I want to give you a special invitation to help grow your business and your brand 
all this year, okay? Every single day. You eat every day for the for your health. You brush your teeth every every day for your hygiene. I need you to learn and grow every single day um, for your mindset, okay? So make sure you go to themorningmeetup.com. It is only $1 um, trial. You don't need a promo code. Just go $1, themorningmeetup.com. Check it out. If you like us, stay. If not, after that, it's $79 a month. But I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy yourself, okay? So go to themorningmeetup.com. I love y'all. See you in the morning. The Social Food Podcast. Streaming now on all platforms. All platforms. I'm ready. Let's, let's get this party All started. Right. Let's go. Listen, welcome to another edition of the Social Fruit Podcast, man, where we find people who have documented success. You know, uh, they can go out and teach it, man. I am... You, you don't know it, but I've been waiting all week for this interview, bro. Oh, man. Me and you both. Bro. I'm not going to lie to you. Sweaty hands and all. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Let's get to it, baby. So we got, uh, I got in the car, uh, car rental games. Shouts out to Maddie J. For sure. And um, we were at, for one, I, I wasn't 100% sure. I didn't know you did, like, the car rental game. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. But then we started talking at the bowling alley, and I am wowed, bruh. Like, yo, you wow. I'm sitting there with my jaw dropped. Like, I appreciate what? that. What? I appreciate that. Things that I've never even thought of. So um, I'm really excited about this, man. Man, me too. I've been waiting for this. Matter of fact, before the wedding thing, I was like, I was so hyped up for last week. I was like, I'm about to go in there with my boy Dave and go crazy. <laughs> I was like, it's about to go digital. But it's dope, man. I'm I'm glad that you have all of this space. I'm just looking around. I told you I feel like I'm in like Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I'm like, my boy is doing their major and they can't see how cool your whole space look, but this is crazy. <laughs> Bruh. Wow, you. keep doing your thing, my G. Man, I appreciate this you, is, man. This is doper than anything I ever done. I'm just like, I'm hype. I'm hype. I'm a regular bull. I'm a regular dude. I'm from Philly. I'm a regular bull. Like, I'm out here Yo. like, you know what I'm saying? So, Yo, man, so I wasn't what? supposed to be here. You know what I'm man, saying? We, 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 we got it. First off, just go on and introduce yourself, man, because right. we dog um, right here. So, uh, clearly, I'm Pushman Mitch. Uh, I, I own a, the biggest rental car agency in Atlanta. If not the biggest, the second biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I leverage social currency. I teach financial literacy. I teach... I, I, take, I take millionaires and I make them feel like they're regular because I, te- I could teach a regular person how to become a millionaire if they let me. Mm. Does that make sense? So my goal now is just other than to retire my mom this year, mm-hmm. I want to make a million millionaires. So if I touch that guy who touches that guy who touches that guy and, and they got their family getting money, sure. that's what I'm about. So like I was telling you before we started on live, I got to give my boy Clay to be a millionaire. It's guaranteed. I promise Guaranteed. You. Guaranteed. What's the formula? What the, is formula the formula is understanding that if you can sell a product for $1,000 to 1,000 people, you can make a million dollars. So if you can do that times 10, then you can make 10 million. You know what I'm saying? And people, when you break it down to the smallest point, it's easy. It's not even hard. Not easy, but it's simple. It's simple. You get not what I'm saying? Easy. It's going to take work. Yeah, it's going to take work because... Uh, a lot of people want instant gratification. So that's the social media thing, right? Yeah. They see me in Lambo, so they're like, oh, I want to get the course so I can get a Lambo. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, that's Z, though. That's not A. Right, right. Start from A, go to V, C, D, 
make the bumps and bruises so you know what you're doing when you get the Z. Mm. Why would you want to just start off with a Lambo? You're going to start off with a Lambo, crash it, and now you're done. Right. You get what I'm saying? Get you some Toyota Prius, just crash them up, learn the formula, insurance, how to pay for that, and now you got a Lambo, no brainer. Oh, Easy. Okay, okay. You slow me? down. Slow down. Nah, man. for real. <laughs> hey, look. Hey, I can't go in public Yo, like civilians. Man. For real. This, this is king of car rentals right here. And I, how many cars do you have? Uh, forty-three for myself, but I have a network of one hundred and fifty. So, like I told you, if you take my course, you understand that I don't only have hold to on, own. Them. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You have 43 cars. 43. And a network of how many? Of 150 and still building. So explain the network of 150. So what I do... What's going on, YouTube? Come back at you another video. So we got some breaking news. Rapper OMBPZ has been arrested for the shooting that took place in Atlanta recently... If you didn't hear the news, Roddy Rich and 42 Doug were on set shooting a music video. Three people ended up being shot. There wasn't many details at the time. There was nobody arrested. Now, OMBPZ has been charged. I'm going to show you what his um, charges are. He's been arrested for... Aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, as well as possession of a firearm during a felony. So OMBPZ clearly going to be facing some serious time during this incident. Three people were shot. Nobody lost their life, thankfully, but there was multiple injuries I'm OMBPZ now. A lot of people on the internet reacting to this all over his Instagram. You see people saying free OMBPZ. Um, sad situation. We see this all too often. Hopefully OMBPZ is not guilty of the crimes he's being accused of. Because if he is, there's a good chance he's probably going to go to prison for quite a while. Um, Got to be smarter Got to move better. Got to stay out of the streets in 2021. There's nothing left in the streets for anybody. He's claiming his innocence, though. Um, be sure that you at least give him the um, benefit of the doubt that he's innocent until this all plays out in court. Let me know what you guys think in the comments, though. Hit the like, subscribe, share. Leave some feedback. Make sure you ring the notification bell too if you're subscribed so you get updates my future videos when they drop. Before you leave, please take just one second too to click the link. I'm going to pin as the top comment. It's going to take you to a dope artist out there trying to get his YouTube channel monetized. He's almost there. Please click the link and subscribe. It costs you absolutely nothing. I definitely do appreciate you watching though. Peace success, which would include in this instance, pursuing the internal process that we would refer to, uh, but only if you meet those requirements. If you clearly don't meet those requirements, it doesn't make any sense even to pursue the internal process. For instance, 
if you haven't served 50%, if you just entered prison, you don't have any medical conditions and there are no cases in the prison, I wouldn't waste a lot of time with the internal process. Uh, if you meet one or more of the- Right okay. there. Let's just continue right there. You wouldn't waste time trying to lobby through that Bureau of Prisons. Does that mean you would then turn your attention to going to federal court or you would just not do anything? It would depend on how many other factors you have working in your favor. I was about to say, if you have one or more working in your favor, either a medical condition compromising one's immune system, uh, you are of, of an elderly age and or you've served 50% of more of your time, one or more of those conditions, I would pursue both the compassionate release and the 2241 approaches, once again, because they're filed in two different courts. How about a case like Michael Avenatti, who is, uh, you're familiar with that case? Yes, I am. And Michael Cohn as well. And neither of those people are 60 years old, and neither of those people serve 50% of their time. Both of them are going to home confinement. Very interesting. I was very surprised. But so what, so what I would find in that is that if you don't try, nothing happens. If you try, the odds may be 1%, but you're trying. That's, that's true. Yeah, that is very true. And, and so you know, I, I don't know that the, the right answer. I think every answer has to be on an individual basis. But it sure is helpful to know that, that people have a resource like you that they can ask these kinds of questions. And we did receive a question from a, from a young woman who's advocating on behalf of her son. Um, she asked, how, how long would it take you to prepare documents that would help her son or potentially have, help her son? I have prepared a detailed process sheet which, which uh, involves, a, is basically a, a detailed questionnaire the answers to which provide me with the information in full that I will need to file both a 2241 petition and a compassionate release motion. From the moment I receive that, those answers in full on that process sheet, I can file within one day. Now, that doesn't mean we will because the process is I will send the documents to the client for review and the client ultimately will send in the documents, but the documents would be ready for filing within 24 hours. All of the templates for these have been created. Uh, I've done a number of these cases in the last several weeks, and at this point, what changes the document are the specific answers to the questions that we've created in the process sheet. Well, that's very, that's very helpful. I'm sure that'll be very helpful for, for any listener. And if anybody wants to get a hold of David, I will be very happy to pass along his, his contact information. And, and David, we'd love to just, you know, have an ongoing dialogue with you on matters related to, uh, you know, what your experiences were while going through 11 years in prison. And uh, I want to just thank you for giving us your time this evening. Is there anything you'd thank like to say to the group? Well, I'd like to also say to the group that I'd like to be back and also keep you all apprised of developments as I hear them from inside the prisons from my current clients who are reporting to me on a regular basis, particularly on this COVID situation, which is so fluid. 
there is a lot of very interesting, I would say, but oftentimes disturbing information I'm getting back from the inmates insofar as the lack of testing for staff in particular. And those staff who are many times asymptomatic are, are likely to be bringing in, in many instances, the COVID virus to the inmate population. So that's very, very concerning and it continues on an ongoing basis today. So the name of our group is Prison Professors and David clearly is somebody who has gone through 11 years plus in prison, is, is eminently qualified as a prison professor and just want to uh, um, make it clear that, that, that our role is to help people understand what strategies that they can pursue, but at the end of the day, it's their choice on whether to pursue it or not. Um, my experience of going through 26 years in prison was always to be a, a self-advocate and to, to try and get the best possible outcome. David, I, I, I trust that you feel the same way. I do, Michael, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners this evening. Excellent. So, so his name is David. He's part of the Prison Professors team. And if you want to connect with David, please let us know. Um, I'm sure that uh, Justin can connect you and uh, you'll, you'll have an opportunity to learn from somebody who's got a, an immense amount of knowledge both about the dust because now we're looking at two different guidelines we're looking at 2s 1.1 and 2s 1.2 and trying to see if we can group these and base these on an aggregate under rule d they are both listed there but as you will learn later in the broadcast it doesn't necessarily mean that when some when two counts are listed as groupable under rule d that you are going to use Rule D for grouping those counts together. However, in the first 10 counts of 2S 1.1, if you are applying relevant conduct correctly and you're using your expanded relevant conduct, you know that when you go to the 2S 1.1 guideline for the first time, your expanded relevant conduct is going to aggregate the value of the funds laundered and that is the primary determinant of the offense level under 2s 1.1 how much money was laundered during this offense so when you go there for the first time you're going to aggregate the total amount of laundered funds that equals 2.5 million and therefore you have grouped counts 1 through 10 under Rule D. Now let's take a look at counts 11 through 15, violations of Title 18, Section 1957. This guideline, 2S 1.2, also considers the value of the funds laundered. This guideline is also listed as groupable under Rule D. So when you go to 2S 1.2 for the first time, you are going to, using your relevant conduct analysis and your expanded relevant conduct, you are going to aggregate again the value of the funds that were laundered in counts 11 through 15 for a total of $150,000. Now, because both of these offenses are listed at Rule D, and when you consider relevant conduct, 
when you are looking at, let's say, 2S1.1 for the first time, the court could make a determination that the 2S1.1 counts, in addition to the 2S1.2 counts, are part of the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan as the offense of conviction, which would allow you to aggregate all of the funds laundered in all 15 counts. So the court could determine that they are part of the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan and the value of the funds from all 15 counts should be added and applied to the guideline that produces the highest offense level, which in this case is 2S1.1. So there we see a different example where you're using two guidelines that aren't the same but are similar, where you can use that to aggregate the conduct under one guideline one time. Now I want to jump in here and make a point off of that point that you just made that just because a guideline is listed at 2D1.1 as being groupable or subject to the expanded relevant conduct doesn't necessarily mean that you can group all of those counts together. What I mean by that is this. What you have to do sometimes is look at and evaluate the, the individual guidelines mm -hmm. and determine what is the characterization of the money involved. Right. For example, if you have two counts of conviction, one being a fraud count at 2F1.1 and the other being a tax count at 2T1.1, you have to examine those guidelines and what is the, the characterization of the money in those guidelines. The loss definition at 2F1.1 is the value of the property taken, damaged, or destroyed. Mm -hmm. Well, the determination for the money or the tax loss at the tax guideline is different. There are any number of formulas that you have to compute in order to determine what the tax loss is. So thinking back to the rule when applying um, or grouping counts pursuant to Rule D, you're going to be applying one guideline one time. Well, in a situation where you have a fraud count and a tax count, how are you going to aggregate the amount of monies involved in both of those counts and then plug that into one guideline? Well, and the simple answer is you're not able to do that because the two loss tables, if you look at those two guidelines, are also different. And so there's no mechanism for applying one guideline one time based on the aggregate amount of monies in, in both of those counts of conviction. On the other hand, um, just because a, uh, an offense, excuse me, is listed as excluded from grouping at Rule D mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it can't be grouped pursuant to some of the other rules, A, B, or C. So having said that, maybe we should move on with the discussion of some of our other grouping rules. Exactly. One thing that we need to point out before we get to grouping under rules A, B, or C is that the operation of these grouping rules differs from the operation of grouping under Rule D. We have repeated again and again that when you're grouping multiple counts under Rule D, 
you apply one guideline one time. Well, grouping under rules A is pretty complicated pretty fast on you. There's rules and there's exceptions to the rules, but you're always driving to the sentencing table, as we talked before, the criminal history category going one through six, and those little numbers in paren, zero or one, criminal history category one, two or three, and so forth, are criminal history points. They're not necessarily uh, the number of convictions. These are points that are uh, accumulated uh, via Chapter 4 under the criminal history rules. And you get these points based on uh, prior sentences, based on uh, the defendant's status. Also, this idea of recency. You just got out of prison fairly recently and you're sort of, the defendant's sort of back at it again. We're saying you're going to get extra points. The defendant's going to get extra points under this idea of recency. And you'll see some types of offenses that are never counted. For example, foreign sentences, uh, tribal court sentences, uh, court martials, even juvenile status offenses, for example. Now, under the guidelines, juvenile convictions are countable, potentially, but not juvenile status offenses. You know, possession of alcohol by a minor would be an example of a juvenile status offense. And it works like this. You get three points if the sentence is greater than 13 months, two points if it's greater than 60 days or equal to 60 days up to 13 months and one point for all others. And you'll see this time period. So if you have a, a three-pointer, you've got a two-year prison sentence, it's a three-pointer, you have a time period. It has to be within 15 years of the sentence you'll see a notation, imposition, or release. What that means, you, you look at when that offense occurred and then count back 15 years. And if that prior sentence occurred within that 15 years, you're going to meet the requirements of that time period. If that prior sentence occurs before that 15-year period and the defendant got a prison sentence, and was released within that 15-year time period, it's also countable. Okay, these time periods are important to keep in mind. So this is for prior offenses committed at 18 or older. These are adult um, prior sentences. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, you also count sentences that occurred before uh, age 18. That's a little bit different. Here you get you get a three-pointer if uh, only if convicted as an adult and the sentence has to be greater than 13 months and it's the time period is within 15 years of the sentence and position or release. A two-pointer for greater or equal to 60 days up to 13 months. You have a time period there within five years and a one-pointer for all others. Now there's some other important determinations you sort of have to be mindful of as you do the criminal history rules, and we can't point them all out for you, but the key ones, especially for you new folks, the key ones to be looking at 
is the relationship of prior sentences and uh, relevant conduct. Under 41.2A1, it says the term prior sentence means any sentence previously imposed upon adjudication of guilt for conduct not part of the instant offense. If you had a drug case, for example, where you had relevant conduct from a prior sentence being included in, in the current offense conduct, okay, you're going to include that in the offense and not count it. As prior as a prior sentence, it gets a little complicated, but you know on that point. But the basic rule is, if it's part of the instant offense, if you pulled that conduct out of a state sentence and put it into the the, the current offense to do the guideline calculation, you're going to include it um, as uh, you're not going to include it as a, a prior. Uh, sentence. The other point is uh, related prior cases. Related cases are treated as one sentence for purpose of the criminal history calculation. On page 293 of the guidelines manual, 41.2A2 says prior sentences imposed in unrelated cases are to be counted separately and prior sentences imposed in related cases are uh, treated as one sentence, one sentence for purposes of uh, 41.1. If a, if a defendant comes in for a sent, uh, in a prior sentence, and there's two or three cases all sentenced on the same day, for example, they they could be sort of grouped together, you know, into one sentence and and have one set of criminal uh, history points for that uh, prior sentence. So you want to be mindful to take a look at related cases. The other point you want to be mindful of are prior revocations of supervision. Sort of like the question, well, how do, how do the guidelines treat a, a prior sentence where there was also a, a probation sentence where then the probation... How to raise your credit score by 200 points. Did you know that at one point I had a 558 credit score and in just a matter of weeks I had it over 770? Yes, I literally got my credit score increased by over 200 points and now it's over 800. I'm going to share with you exactly what I did and how you can do it too. Let's go. No way. She can fix that. If you gotta get it done, no, you need to do it better. Well, she can fix that. Yeah, she can fix that. Investment to get back, trying to get a big step. She can fix that. Let's fix that. So, when we are talking about credit, we are talking about personal credit scores. Many of you guys may be aware that there are three credit bureaus that report personal credit you have Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. Those three credit bureaus will report all of the trade lines for all of the debts that you've taken out. For example, if you have student loans, if you have credit cards, if you have a car loan, if you have a mortgage, all of those different things will report on your credit report as a trade line. They'll report when you open the account, how much you owe them, 
what the payments are, how well you pay them, and basically all of the information regarding that account. You also want a mix of different accounts. You don't want all credit cards because those are considered revolving accounts. You also don't want just a car loan or a couple car loans because those are installment accounts. You really want a nice mix of the different types of accounts that exist and you want to make sure that you are paying everybody on time. Those are the main things when it comes to personal credit. So let me get into how you increase that score. So step one, the first thing that you want to do when we're talking about increasing your personal credit scores, you need to know what your credit score is. Now, many times I know you've heard that you can get your credit report absolutely free. You can go to sites like annualcreditreport.com and get a free copy of your credit report annually. However, you will not get your real credit score by getting that free report. You're going to have to pay a little bit of money to actually see what your FICO score is. I'm going to give you a link below to a company called myfico.com. I have found that they are an excellent resource for pulling my credit, pulling my students and my other clients' credits, and it's very accurate to what their real FICO scores are. I'm telling you a secret, but I've really found that Credit Karma and a couple of the other ones, their scores are not necessarily as accurate as my FICO has been into what some of the lenders are seeing. So if you want to get your credit score and you want to get your credit score up, you got to know where you start, so go ahead and pull that credit report and pay a little bit of money to find out what your credit score is so that we can go from there. So when it comes to personal credit, there is a major problem that many people have already found, and this is one of the things that I found. As I started using a lot of my credit cards, my credit score started to go way down, but I needed to use my personal credit in order to build my business. So I'll take you back. Many of you guys know that I started investing in real estate around 2002, 2003, and I was a complete disaster. I ended up losing everything and ended up back in my parents' basement with multiple foreclosures and bad credit. I was a disaster. But while I was in my parents' basement, I learned something called wholesaling. I learned how to find people with property problems, and I learned how to get those properties under contract and then flip those contracts to other investors for a fee. I literally started making five and $10,000 per deal, and I was able to get myself out of my parents' basement. The problem is I still kind of had bad credit. I would pay off some of my debts, and I started paying down things and trying to get myself back into position, but I still had a very low credit score because of all of the foreclosures and the bankruptcies that were on my credit report. So when I was looking to increase my credit score, I had to get creative. One of the things that I did was I got someone to sponsor me. So many of you guys know that you can find someone to put you as an authorized user on their credit cards. I did this and my credit score increased by over a hundred points. I literally was able to ask my dad if he would put me on some of his credit cards. I knew he had very good credit, but I knew he wasn't going to like co-sign for me or anything like that. 
So I simply asked if he could put me on his credit cards as an authorized user, especially credit cards that had no balance and a very high credit limit. For example, he had an American Express that had like an $8,000 limit or something like that, and he didn't carry a balance on it, meaning he never really used the card, and he had had that card for like seven or eight years. So when he added me to that account, they started reporting that on my personal credit report as an authorized user, and my credit score increased. He did that on about five or six of his credit cards, and that was how I was able to get my credit score up 100 points. So that's how you get your first 100 points. You need to find a sponsor. You need to find someone with very good personal credit. Send everything out so you don't have no problems. You get yourself a W-2 at the end of the year. You want that. Trust me. <laughs> don't be like me in the past where I learned from that mistake, okay? Now... You have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. What is a reasonable salary? Well, if you look up on the IRS rules, they have, cert they have certain rules around what a reasonable salary is. It can be based upon expertise, how much money the business generates, um, uh, the, the economy, where you're looking. It's a lot of things that are involved in this, okay? When it comes to reasonable salary. That's why you want to talk to a... Um, a legal or a, a financial professional to be able to discuss what a reasonable salary is based off your business. I'm just giving you an example here. Now, the example I'm going to give you is, I'm going to say out of this $100,000 in net, I only want, I want 50% of that to, to be paid out as a reasonable salary to me. So I'm going to take a salary of 50,000 and I'm going to have the other 50,000 being paid out as a distribution to me. The distribution is still going to come to me. I just want it to be done differently. And I'll, I'll talk about why. The reason why is because on your reasonable salary of $50,000, you have to pay self-employment tax on that reasonable salary, okay? So, now that I'm only taking a salary of 50,000, my self-employment tax, that 15.3%, instead of it being $15,300 that I'm paying on the whole, on the entire 100K, I'm now only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax because my salary is only $50,000. You get it? 50,000, 15.3%, $7,650 in self-employment tax instead of 15,300 because the entire 100 grand, I'm breaking it up into reasonable salary. Now, what happens to that other $50,000 in net? I'm paying it to me as a distribution. That's one of the advantages of having an S-Corp. You can pay a distribution to yourself. That distribution that you pay to yourself, there is no self-employment tax on the distribution. So now that there's no self-employment tax on the, 50, on the distribution, I'm getting the 50,000 bypassing that 15.3% in tax. I still have to pay, of course, the federal, the state, local, and et cetera taxes on that 50,000. I'm bypassing that 15.3% though that becomes expensive to me over time as I start to make more money. So now, no, uh, no self-employment tax on that other 50,000, $0 in SC tax. 
So now I only had to pay $7,650 because I distributed it out. Now, I know what you're probably saying to yourself. Well, Don, why don't I, if I can bypass the self-employment tax of the 15.3%, why don't I just pay out my entire amount as a distribution? I know you're probably thinking that as an entrepreneur because, look, I would think the same thing. Mm, 15.3, I've paid out as the distribution. Trust and believe me, the IRS keeps a very close eye on that. And that's why they say reasonable salary. Because if you start paying, if you try to abuse this rule, and out of this 100000 you say, you know what, I'm only going to take a reasonable salary of ten of $10,000 or 10% of this, and the other 90% is going to be a distribution, I can guarantee you're going to get flagged. Almost guarantee it. You don't abuse this here, right? So I say 50-50. There's others online that say 60-40. Right. Some people, it depends. Talk to your talk to a professional. Right. But you want to make sure that it's a reasonable salary. I'm going 50 50 and I'm being modest here. OK, don't abuse this rule. They put this in place for a reason because they know people are going to try to bypass and pay out an entire distribution of themselves to bypass the 15.3 percent in tax. Right. So. That's the reason why, as an entrepreneur, don't try to get, don't try to do any funny business here, right? 50, 50% goes reasonable, the other 50% goes distribution, cool, I'm able to bypass. Now, if we talk about it from a savings perspective now, remember, between my $15,300 that I'm paying in self-employment tax on this entire 100K, plus that 25% that I'm paying in federal and state taxes, I'm paying about $36,000 over here as an LLC that's taxed as a, as a sole prop. But now, since I'm an S-Corp, I'm only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax, and I'm bypassing the self-employment on that other $50,000. And I still got to pay my federal and state taxes, right, which is still going to be $20,000 over here. Same thing. But the difference is now, instead of me paying $36,000, I'm actually paying about $28,000 in taxes on this side. So now that I'm only paying $28,000 on this side, and I'm going to write this down. Now that I'm only paying $28,000 on this side, instead of actually paying $36,000 on this One defense to sale of a drug would be entrapment. And that would be if the police or law enforcement agents induce someone who otherwise was not predisposed to engage in a transaction to do so. An example of entrapment in a, in a sale of drugs scenario would be uh, medical marijuana. Uh, we've seen here in Las Vegas where law enforcement operatives will contact medical marijuana dispensary providers in California and offer them a price for medical marijuana that's far greater than what they could get in California. And then they in turn come here, deliver marijuana to the state of Nevada, and they get arrested for sale of marijuana. That would be a scenario where we might have a good argument that a person who otherwise was not predisposed to engage in a sale, was induced or entrapped by the price 
that local law enforcement was willing to pay. Another defense to the sale of narcotics is that you were not the seller. We often come across situations where someone may be a drug user and they're in an area where drugs are being sold, but the prosecution is unable to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that our client was the one actually doing the selling of the drugs. If you were merely present, that is not enough to find you liable for this charge. They just don't. They're laborers, and we're going to cash some of their checks. And he goes, okay, that makes sense. Leaves, comes back. Finally comes back, and I said, hey, what's going on? You know, and he says, listen, he said, uh, I just, we're just doing a series of checks on, to verify things. And I go, okay. And he says, uh, I said, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, we're trying. He said, we, it turns out that this check was issued uh, by, on, a, on a house owned by a Michael Shanahan. And I was like, right, right. And he goes, he said, right, so we're just trying to verify uh, that Michael Shanahan issued the check. That's all. Well, there's a real Michael Shanahan. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> well, that's not good. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So he leaves. Becky calls. What's going on? They're trying to call Michael Shanahan. She's like, get out of the bank. And I'm like, I can't. This guy's got my shit. I leave the bank for sure. They're calling the cops. I have to wait. Hang up the phone. A minute later, my phone rings. I look at it. I don't recognize the number. I pick it up and I go, hello. And there's a woman like, hi, this is Kimberly from SunTrust Bank. Is this Michael Shanahan? I'm like, yes, it is. And she goes, hi, uh, we have someone here at the bank trying to cash a cashier's check uh, that was drawn on your, your, on your, uh, from the title company. And I'm like, okay. And they said, uh, what was, do you, you know, who was the, how much was the amount for? I said, yeah, that was Scott Cugno. It was 30, about $29,000 even, I think. And she says, that's right, Mr. Thank you very much, Mr. Shannon. I said, hey, how did you get my number? Because if you called information, you would have got his real number. And, and I go, how'd you get my number? Oh, we called the title company. They looked on the application that I had filled out, and I'd used the cell number. And they said, we just got it off of there. I hope it's okay. No problem. No problem. Okay, thank you. Boom. Hang up the phone. Five minutes later, still, the guy comes out with some woman, counts out the money to me, gives me the money. I stand up, and he says, Mr. Cugno, I would like to... Um, say that I feel very uncomfortable about this transaction. And I said, well, what is it exactly? And he goes, you know, I can't put my finger on it. And I said, well, I'm, it'll come to you. <laughs> and I walk off. Listen, I was terrified. Fucking terrified. I like to think that when the Secret Service showed up, you know, five, six days later, a week later, he realized I was Chris is in New York City. Hey, Chris, how can we help? Hey, Dave, hey, Ken. Uh, great to be on the show. Thanks. How can we help? Yeah, um, uh, real quick, I just want to give a shout-out to my girlfriend, Maria Jose. She told me to call in. Um, reason I'm calling is because I've got a lot of friends who are buying into cryptocurrency, and, you know, my investments are all in mutual funds like you recommend. Um, and I'm hearing about, you know, Bitcoin, dog or Dogecoin, and all these other things. 
And I, I just wanted your thoughts on how to respond when people try to pressure you to invest into this stuff and maybe even get your thoughts on cryptocurrency in general. Okay. I wouldn't do it. Why? Because I think it's still very speculative. We've already seen big highs and big lows, and I think it's still rocky. I do think that crypto is coming to stay. I think right now it's a lot of speculation, and until it gets adopted and we start seeing businesses move that way, I'd I'd stay on the sidelines. And it's not a part of our investment strategy at Ramsey Solutions either. So there, there's that too, which Dave, you're far more versed in that well, than it, I am. But know, I it's had an, it's say. had an incredible year. Yeah, people made a lot of money out this year, without yeah. a doubt, no question about that. Um, but they make a lot of money on cocaine too, <laughs> um, right. and they make a lot of money on uh, you know playing futures, and they make a lot of money at, at the blackjack table, and they make a lot of money betting football. But these are not investment strategies. That's correct. These are these are uh, things that you can jump into or jump out of that are uh, uber unbelievable high risk Mm -hmm. and so the problem is is that people don't perceive the risk in bitcoin and it's there it's 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 a it's not it's not fully adopted they made a lot of money this year made a lot of money in gold a few years ago too and i'm telling people not to buy gold and all the gold bugs are going dave ramsey's an idiot he doesn't understand no dave ramsey completely understands i've lost my butt in a bunch of high risk investments over the years i quit doing it I don't like having to start over. It's too expensive. So if you want to start over, play crap that's high risk. If you don't want to start over, do what you're doing. But you're not going to convince friends who are making a bunch of money that they're stupid. Just let them be stupid and smile. It's okay. What better than to connect with somebody who's gonna who embraces the boss culture of be your own boss? Right, right. How'd you, how'd you connect with them? So what I did was, I got on Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. Don't ask me what made me do it, I don't know. I found a good video of mine, talking my talk, I was talking about trust, and I said, I'm gonna give a mentorship spot away, and I'm gonna take you on a private jet with me to our next meetup. Mm-hmm. If you tag Rich Forever as many times as possible. Jeez. Listen, I had 6,6400 comments. I had to stop it. I, I got the meeting within 48 hours. Wow. 24 hours, his team contacted me. I met with one of his team members, sat down, and the same thing you said. They had to make sure it wasn't a scam. Right. I said, listen, I don't do anything for nobody. I teach people how to fish. I'm not fishing for you. I'm teaching you how to fish. Your business is up to you what you handle and execute. I just teach you how to fish. Sit. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just not done for you services. I'm not doing anything for you. Not promise you any, anything. You're going to come and learn how to work. I'm going to give you my blueprints on how I make money and how I work. Right. And then I broke some of them down to him. He said, okay. He left. He called me, at, I was on, a, on my Zoom call teaching. He said, yo, Rose said, tomorrow morning, 9.30. Come to the crib. Come to the crib. Was you nervous? Bro, 
extreme. <laughs> right? I feel like a kid, right. but you, it's rosé. Right. It's Ross. Right? Like, in my mind, I, 06 Ross Port of Miami came out. Yeah. You gotta understand, this is like my whole adult life. Ross been that dude. Yeah, so, we, I'm going, and, and homie come in the room, right? So they open, they, listen, they open the door for him. And it's like, everybody back up. And Hold on, at his crib? Yes, listen, they pulled, I'm sitting in the room, and they pulled the doors open for him. His tray set out. His, 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 his amenities is set there. All his brands is laid out. They pulled the door open for me. He walking with stuff on me, right? And, and we start talking. And as I'm talking, he's looking down. And he started talking to me like he was rapping. What you mean? He like, yo, he like, he was like, yeah. He was like, see, if Rose get on it, you understand what's going to happen? Like, you understand what's coming with that? Mm-hmm. He was like, is this Ross? <laughs> That's all. All your yo, songs start playing in your head. Like, yo, listen, right here. Yo, and he sit here, and the way he hit it, like, man, it's rose. Like, then he get in, he get to going laughing, and we talk. <laughs> we had a thirty minute meeting. We lasted an hour and a half. Mm. So now he's slapping the table. He talking to me, breaking stuff down, and I'm listening to him, and I'm going, my man, whole persona of everything that I hear on these raps. He's doing it now. Mm. Them, huh? Like, he's doing it like, and I'm like, yo, this is crazy. I'm sitting Uh, here with like my, with one of my idols, like, and I had this meeting and go back and forth. It was just dope, like, that's what's up. It was legendary. And and, and I I know that's just the start. And I, I know I know you got a busy day, man. So um, I, I don't want to keep you too long. But um, one, thank you again. Like I, I mean, I've learned so much, and you just got me like really thinking of a, 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 of other ways I can be smart about money. You know what I mean? Like at least yeah. sparking the conversation of like who thinks to get a two hundred dollar car note wrap that joint and make $600 a month. Like the, the principle is you get a liability turn into an asset and have it making you money, oh. right? People just don't think like that. You feel me? So I'm thinking like, okay, where am I slipping? Like, so thank you. That's why we're recession proof. Like, absolutely. I like to uh, make predictions on the podcast, man. So, um, I want to know where you see yourself in the next five to ten years so that we can look back at this five years from today. And I can say I have the footage of where Marcus said he was going to do this five years ago and look at him. Five to ten. I'm going to develop a financial literacy app that's going to be mandatory to put on every cell phone, on every Apple, either iPhone or Google Android. I'm going to make a financial literacy app that's going to be mandatory like they put stocks on every cell phone. I'm going to make the financial literacy credit monitoring app that will be on every phone. Mm. 
John is with us in Philadelphia. Hi, John. Welcome to the Dave Ramsey Show. Hey, Dave. Can you hear me? Sure. What's up? Hey, uh, kind of a simple question for you today. Um, I'm 22. I have no credit. Um, I was wondering if it was good as a beginner to get a small amount of credit, say 300 bucks or so, uh, with unsecured debt for credit worthiness, I guess. So you, you want to be worthy to borrow money and go in debt? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's credit worthiness, right? Okay. Well, well, I didn't know because my dad always told me that it's an important thing, and then I started yeah. watching your show a couple months back, yeah. and I'm starting to realize, hmm, maybe it's, not, maybe it's not such an important thing, you know? So, But, John, not only, you're 22 and you don't have any. Why don't you have it? I don't know. I just never started. Well, that's a blessing in disguise, my friend. Yes. All right. That's that's wonderful. Glad to hear that. So here's the thing: the you're right. The culture, including your dad, everybody says you need credit because everybody has been told by the banking industry for 75 years that the best way to become prosperous is borrow to buy the stuff you want. Uh huh. Right. And so it's become culturally accepted that that's the way to go. However, that's a bill of goods sold to us by a villain known as the bank. Uh, Because it built large towers in our skylines, and they all have bank names on them. It didn't build a large tower in your living room, uh, because all your living room money from your dad went to that bank. Mm -hmm. And so the borrower is slave to the lender is a very real thing. And what we have discovered is the shortest, least risk path to wealth is to not have any payments. And then the question always comes up, well, don't I need to get some payments so that I have credit? Why? So that I can get some payments so that I have credit. Why? So that I can get some payments so that I have credit and debt. Why? And so the the point being that um, we tell folks to, um, you know, stay out of debt because it's the shortest path to wealth. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And you already discovered that watching our videos, right? Yeah. Okay. And I understand it's countercultural, but if you look around the culture, most people are broke. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And John, let me let you in on this. Um, I I worked in the industry, the banking world, for about 12 years and didn't understand really the FICO score until I joined Dave's team. And the FICO score measures how much debt you have, the type of debt you have, the likelihood that they'll give you more debt, and how you've paid debt. There's a theme there. And that it's not a matter of how wealthy you are or how well you're doing. It's how you're doing with debt. So, no, sir, you don't need to bring on any debt in your life. I love the fact that you've avoided it at 22 and want to continue to encourage you to avoid it like the plague. 
like the plague. There is nothing positive that's going to come from it. And I promise you, your mailbox is going to start to get some offers. You're going to start to see it and be more aware of it. And I want you to have that mindset ready because as soon as you let your guard down, that's when stupid will creep in. Yeah, stupid will sneak up on you. Yes. I'm a big YouTuber. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, uh, Prince James, this is from the New York Post. Ran across your Crown TV news show on YouTube, found it riveting. I want to shout out Crown TV Courts. Shout out to Crown TV. Crown TV Courts. Check out my homie Prince, you know what I'm saying? They cover all high-profile court cases on behalf of the people. Nobody else in the media is covering this case. All the information that's coming out is pretty much coming from Crown TV. I think that it's amazing that a black man is sitting on a platform breaking down the law. That is beautiful. I applaud that and I think it's dope as well. Yeah, what's poppin', y'all? Welcome back to Crown TV Course, brought to you by Crown TV, sponsored by Who's Your Taxman. Who'sYourTaxman.com. This is a company based out of California, but they service the entire United States. It's tax season, y'all. Don't be like Drizzy. Get your tax affairs in order. All right, y'all. Now, a lot of people have been asking for this video, and we have the ability to make it, so I figured why not? This channel kind of missed the boat on this case because we didn't exist and because there was nobody covering it. A lot of people either don't know the case exists or those that do don't have the details. So we're going to run through this case real quick and bring everybody up to speed. And we're talking about the federal case for Taxstone. This case was split into two different cases. The gun charge is federal, and then the trial that's coming up is state. So we're going to run through this thing, and we're going to start with the indictment. First of all, this case started in 2017. The complaint was filed in January. This indictment was filed in February. This case is still very much alive. Now, he's charged with two counts in this indictment, Count one is for being a felon in possession of a firearm, and count two is for the receipt of a firearm in interstate commerce. Here is the breakdown. Now, this is from the plea agreement, and I'm jumping around, but I promise y'all I got this thing laid out. So for count one, which is the being a felon in possession of a firearm, this has three elements to it. First, that he knowingly possessed a firearm. Second, that the possession of that firearm was in or affecting interstate commerce. This deals with the firearm crossing state lines. And third, that prior to possessing that firearm, he had a felony conviction, thus making him a felon in possession of a firearm. Now, count two, which is the receipt of a firearm in interstate commerce, has two elements. First, that the defendant shipped, transported, or received in interstate or foreign commerce a firearm. That again deals with the firearm crossing state lines. And second, that he did so with the intent to commit another felony. Now, both of these charges carry a max of 10 years, so he's facing 20 years. He pled out to both of these counts in June 
of 2017, and he still has not been sentenced. There's been a lot of motions, a lot of arguing, a lot of chicanery going on in this case. So that's why he has not been sentenced yet. This case is still very much alive. Very quickly, I want to run through some details in this case, and then I want to show y'all something that deals with the character of Taxstone. Now, this is the government talking about what they would have produced at trial had Taxstone not taken this plea. It says the government would expect to present evidence including video, DNA evidence, witness testimony, and physical evidence to include a recovered firearm and ballistics showing that the defendant had received the firearm in question from outside of the state prior to May 25, 2016. That the defendant bought the firearm to a venue despite having previously been convicted of a felony where he used that firearm to fire one shot that killed Ronald McFadder and additional shots in the course of a confrontation. From another document, and before this, it talks about him not possessing a weapon at a business. It says he possessed at a crowded concert filled with innocent people. At least four shots, excuse me, five shots were fired from that weapon. Four struck people in this concert venue, wounding three and killing one. I'll get into the evidence in a second. But in addition to the evidence, in the complaint that the defendant possessed a firearm and possessed it at that location, the government will proffer that there's additional evidence which showed the defendant fire at least the initial shots from that weapon, including the fatal shot, which killed McFadder as detailed in the complaint. Second, as to the strength of the evidence, Your Honor, the evidence, especially under current charges, is overwhelming. You like them or don't like them. Uh, if you don't like them, then they're removed from office and then there's uh, somebody else appointed. It's not a contested election like the local judges, right, the state court right. or the and, trial court judges. And they're all nonpartisan, so there's no Republicans, there's no Democrats. All judges. All judges. Yeah, not Florida. just the appellate court ones. So. Okay, so six-year term. So what happens in the lower-level courts, the trial court, what happens that sometimes, because we see governors appoint some of those lower-level judges? Why is that? If those judges leave office before their six-year term is up, the governor has the option of appointing judges in their spots to finish out the term, and then they have to run for election. But initially, that first term, they get appointed. These, what we're talking about now, the method of appointment for the state governors, are all states like this or just Florida? Uh, Florida, not all states are the same, but okay. Florida, this is Florida. So how does the process work when the governor actually appoints these judges? Well, the way it starts is once a judicial vacancy occurs, then within 60 days of that, the, the Judicial Nominating Commission, and the Judicial Nominating Commission is uh, a group appointed in every circuit, or there's one for the Supreme Court, there's one for every district court of appeals, but there's a judicial nominating commission. There are nine people on the commission. The commission is totally appointed now by the governor, and that started in 2018. Before that, the Florida Bar appointed three, the governor appointed three, 
and those six appointed the other three. So who, who makes up that judicial nominating commission? It's part lawyers and part <clears throat> non-lawyers. Uh, normally it's the majority are lawyers and the minority are non-lawyers and they're, again they're all appointed by the governor. The Florida Bar recommends four lawyers and the governor appoints five other people and they can be lawyers or non-lawyers. Who are the other people usually that are chosen for well, they the non-lawyers? Well, governors always seem to find some non-lawyer people, some supporters, some uh, spouses of supporters. Are they like um, businessmen and women? Are they professionals? Are they random people? Are they lobbyists? Who are they? All of the above. Okay. They can be anybody. Uh, uh, stock. When I served on the uh, Judicial Nominating Commission, we had a stockbroker, we had a stay-at-home mom, we had all sorts of, of people of different races, employments, everything sat on the commission. And what are those conversations like when you're on the commission between the lawyers and the non-lawyers? Do the lawyers dominate the discussion or do they explain how the process works? What is that like when you're sitting in the meetings? Well, actually, uh, it really is very good. Uh, the non-lawyers are very active and it's interesting. The lawyers are very influenced by the way non-lawyers view the, the judiciary and view lawyers. Makes sense. And they're very influenced and they want to pick people to be lawyers. For instance, these trial court judges, the circuit county, they see people all day, every day at their worst in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so these non-lawyers on the commission understand that and they want sympathetic people who understand what real people in real life is like. And not just lawyers, because sometimes lawyers get kind of isolated from the real world. Okay, so the governor appoints this general, the JNC is what we call it. So we'll probably just refer to it as the JNC from now on. So the governor appoints this JNC, and then how does the process take place from there? Then there's an advertisement. <clears throat> Any lawyer who wants can apply to be a judge. And you might get 60 or 70 or 80 people applying, and they fill out a long application, all their finances, everything they own, every, every time they voted, just everything is in this packet and it's sent to the nine members. Is it an application? Are they trying to convince you to pick them or is it just something they give you that's just raw data? It's raw data, but okay. let's be honest with you, they make sure that raw data reflects why they would be good judges. Uh, their work experience, all sorts of uh, family experiences are in there and they can put anything they want. We had some people put in a family album uh, into their application to show, you know, what great family people they were. We had uh, all sorts of stuff that, that stuffed in there to, you know, bring it to our attention. Then the nine members meet and we decide of that, let's say, 70 applications, who we're going to live interview. And we'll try to limit it to maybe 20 or 30 people of live interviews. Those 20 or 30 people are then brought in one at a time and questioned by the nine members. So what happens after the live interviews with the JNC? Well, then the JNC meets those nine members. And that meeting, by the way, is not a government in the sunshine meeting. Uh, it's done in secret. And they sit around and discuss the candidates. They are then required to send to the governor a minimum of three and a maximum of six individuals that they feel are qualified to become judges. 
So they send those up to the governor for review. The governor either accepts them or rejects them. He does not have to accept that. Sometimes the governor has sent back the names and said, look, do another questions. You want to give them some further insight. Sure, Rusty. We would like to focus our questions today on questions that pertain to basic guideline application. However, if you have faxed in a question that we don't get to on our broadcast today, please feel free to call us on our helpline, which operates Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. The number for that is 202-502-4545. Let's go ahead and get started with the videotape and Frank Larry. Before we get started, just wanted to uh, make a couple of points about resources, you know, at the Sentencing Commission, about some of the things that you can uh, have access to. Now, I know the probation officers know a lot about our uh, helpline. We operate a helpline at the Sentencing Commission Monday through Friday from uh, 8.30 to 5 o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time. And I can tell you, if you call us, We'll do as much as we can to answer your questions. The other resource I'm going to point out is our website, www.ussc.gov. On our website, we have a training and education section where we put up a lot of training materials, a lot of training documents. We, we do our best to keep it current. And we're always looking for ideas, too, about our website. I know a lot of you out there are internet savvy, in which case, please, you know, call. You can call me because I'm sort of uh, overseeing our guideline and education section on the uh, internet. But it's turned into a very popular spot for people to go to for information. In terms of all you're going to hear today, about how to apply the guidelines and how the guidelines work. Everything is going to be moving toward this sentencing table. Just as a snapshot, you have the offense level running down this axis, top to bottom, and the criminal history category goes the other way. It goes horizontally, categories one through six. So when you end up with a defense level at a, let's say, a 10 and a category 1 criminal history, basically no criminal history, we're at a guideline range of 6 to 12 months. And that's basically what the court has to use absent a departure up or down. Now, before we actually get into the sort of the, I call it sort of the guideline crunching, you know, all the numbers and everything. Let's talk about what we refer to as determining an appropriate sentence. And we talk about it in terms of a sort of like a two-step process. The first step being to determine the appropriate guideline range. And there's no substitute for that. You've got to go in, do the application, get the guideline range. But we're also going to ask you to do sort of a second step, and that is to make what we call this refined assessment. It could be that 
you know, there's a factor, maybe the guidelines didn't take into account that might distinguish this case, take it out sort of the heartland of cases to make this case a little bit different that might justify, you know, um, a downward departure or possibly an upward departure. But we, we're asking you to sort of stand back and so that an appropriate sentence may be a sentence within the guideline range or it may be a departure, because departures are part of the guideline system. They were intended to be part of the guideline system. We're not out telling everybody to just keep departing all the time from the guidelines. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is where there's a bona fide reason for departure, we're encouraging you to, to be mindful of this. Now, in 1984, the Sentencing Reform Act was placed into law, it made sweeping changes to the way federal sentencing was done. And what we went to was a system of determinate sentencing, basically doing away with parole. And as you know, there's no parole in the federal system anymore. But instead of, you know, the parole, the court actually can uh, impose periods of supervised release. It's similar to the parole, but under supervised release, if a, if a person violates the supervised release term, that person goes back to the judge under the current law, under the Sentencing Reform Act, as opposed to going back to the parole commission under the way the previous law worked. So you do have these terms of supervised release which follow a person's imprisonment term. They do their prison term, potentially then come out on a period of supervised release. You have probation officers who, uh, who are responsible for supervising people. Significant reduction in good time under the Sentencing Reform Act. Under the old law, most prisoners were eligible for at least a third off. Usually they were eligible for parole after a third of their sentence. Under the Sentencing Reform Act, that was reduced to uh, 54 days a year after the first year. Also, the Sentencing Reform Act specifically provided for repeal of a sentence under 37. Today we look at the two federal indictments of Cardi B's BFF Starbrim, and we look at Cardi B's actual charges in New York State Court. Together they're facing about 80 years in prison. Welcome to Hood Law. My name is Nate, former prosecutor, law enforcement officer, and law school lecturer, and welcome to Hood Law. Now, this is a show about the law and how it affects the hood. Today, we are going to look at the federal indictments of Star Brim, the alleged godmother of the five nine Brims. Now, who is Star Brim? Quick recap. Cardi B's best friend is facing charges tonight in a sweeping gang roundup. Starbrim, whose real name is Yannette Respass, was indicted on racketeering and assault charges. They say she was the highest-ranking woman in the 5-9 Brims gang. That's a subset of the Blood Street Gang. She's also accused of putting out a hit on a bartender she thought was having an affair with Cardi B's husband, Offset. In recent years, Brim has become a bit of a social media celebrity with nearly a million followers on Instagram. 
She also appears on Cardi's account regularly. So today, let's look at the facts and allegations that the government has put forward. And we're also going to look at Cardi B's 12 charges. We could get her about a decade in prison. Starbrim has been indicted in both the Southern District of New York, that covers the Bronx and Manhattan, and the Eastern District of New York, which covers Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Both of Starbrim's indictments are RICO indictments. RICO stands for the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Now, for those of you who don't understand how RICO works, here's a quick lesson. RICO doesn't go after individuals, but it goes after criminal organizations. See, just like any other company, you have groups of people carrying out various tasks. And you have people doing things like payroll and HR. And all of them are working in furtherance of the organization. Now, some people are motivated by their paycheck and other people are motivated to move up in the company. For example, I worked in the DA's office. Now, I was a prosecutor, but we also had an HR department. Now, I didn't know what they did in the HR and they didn't know what I did at my job. But we were all working together to further the goals of the DA's office. Now, in a corrupt organization, it's the exact same thing. You have some people working in prostitution, some people working in selling drugs, some people working in recruitment. But all of those people are working to further the organization. Now, this could be either your conventional street gang, like the Blood Street Gang, or this could be like the Mafia. Now, what RICO does is allows the government to hold everyone involved in a criminal organization accountable for the crimes committed in furthering that organization, from the people selling drugs to the people doing the recruiting. Now, even if the defendant is not aware of the other crimes being committed on behalf of the organization, they can still be held accountable. Now, because the government has to prove a defendant is part of a criminal organization for Regal to apply, it's extremely foolish to admit that you're involved in a criminal organization. What does Starbrim mean? It means my name is Star and I'm Blood. So that's oh, wow. Okay, I didn't know. <laughs> oh, that's right. The star <laughs> is Star's the sign for. Brim is the set I'm in. But Cardi did indeed tweet that she's actually Brim Blood, which amazingly isn't the name of one of Harry Potter's professors. Brim, not Nine Trey. I've never been Nine Trey or associated with them. Oh. So now let's talk about the timeline of events with Star, Brim, and Cardi B. So again, these are allegations. Federal prosecutors and state prosecutors allege that on October 15, 2018, members of the Five Nine Brims carried out a violent assault against bartenders at the Angel Strip Club in Flushing, Queens. Now, prosecutors allege that they carried this out because these two women didn't show the proper respect to another member of the gang. Now, most news reports will tell you that one of these women, one of these bartenders, was alleged to have slept with Cardi B's husband, Offset. Now, Star Brim, who was serving a federal prison sentence at the time, commissioned the younger members of the Blood Street Gang, and she called them drops. And she said to, quote, pop that bottle on the bartenders, stating that I want hands put on them. I don't even want no talking. Now, that night, defendants Jeffrey Bush, Louis Love, Rodolfo Zambrano, and three of Respass's drops met at Angel, where they lured one of the bartenders 
across the bar and while holding her by the hair, they began to beat her and throw bottles at her. Now Bush recorded the assault on cell phone video and the video was sent to other gang members on behalf of Respass who allegedly ordered the attack. Respass is starbrim. And again, this was all allegedly because one of these bartenders was sleeping with Cardi B's husband. So Starbrim was charged with conspiracy to commit assault in the aid of racketeering. And this was in the Eastern District of New York. And for that charge, she is facing 20 years in prison. So two weeks after that, Cardi B went to the same strip club. And then she allegedly ordered the bartenders to be beaten again. It's not uncommon at these types of festivals like Burning Man and the Electric Daisy Carnival that in order to get narcotics into the venue that one person in a large group will volunteer to carry substances that are going to be used by everybody. So you've got like a fall guy situation where maybe an individual is bringing in drugs that they're intending only to be for personal use, but because they have a certain quantity, it may look to law enforcement like they're possessing narcotics to sale. When in fact, they're merely being the one that stood up and said, I'll bring these items into the venue. So ultimately, prosecutors are certainly aware of what's going down at these festivals. As a matter of fact, prosecutors were young once too and like to have a good time. If you've been arrested at EDC or Burning Man, the chances are you've probably never been arrested before. And you probably think, oh my God, my life and my future are going to be destroyed. That's simply not true. Call us at 702 Defense. In most situations, these cases can be resolved in a way that will ensure that you don't have to pay a lifetime consequence because you just wanted to come to Nevada to have a good time. In February of 2019, Florida rappers YNW Melly and YNW Portland were put in prison for allegedly staging a drive-by shooting which killed rappers YNW Sack Chaser and YNW Juvie. According to police, on the night of October 26, 2018, shortly after leaving the recording studio, YNW Melly as well as YNW Borland gunned down their two best friends and shot up their vehicle, making it seem as if a drive-by shooting was the result of their deaths. After YNW Melly and YNW Borland's arrest on February 13th, their personal legal battles began. As the legal battles played out while they were in prison, their side of the story had publicly been released. YNW Melly and YNW Borland claimed that on the night of October 26th, as they had been driving around, shots had been fired at their vehicle while in a drive-by shooting, which ultimately led to Sack, Chaser, and Juvie's deaths. After taking their friends to the hospital, they had died shortly later. Looking at the evidence released by the police, there's been multiple instances where some of the information provided was questionable. For example, both YNW members claim that they were victims in a drive-by shooting, but in the area they claim that it happened, no shots were reported. They also claim that the shots had killed their friends and shortly after they drove them to the hospital. 
But looking at cell phone records, it had shown that after the reported time of the drive-by shooting, YNW Millie and YNW Borland had driven around for hours. Police believe it's most likely that they staged a story during this time and used this time to shoot up their vehicle and stage the drive-by shooting. Again, another piece of evidence that was questionable was the bullet trajectory analysis done by the police. By analyzing the trajectory of the rounds that had been fired into the car, you could see the bullets traveled from right to left, which contradicts the victim's left to right wounds. Not only this, but a 40 caliber shell casing had been discovered on the floorboard of the left rear passenger seat where YNW Millie had been sitting. The exact same shell cases had also been found at the crime scene. This influx of information has led to a lot of speculation from YNW Millie's fanbase. People are unsure whether YNW Millie would murder his two lifelong childhood friends for no reason. No motive has been clearly discussed and many people don't believe he did it. Looking at the information and the evidence though, it almost contradicts this. Shell casings found where he was sitting, no shots in the reported area, and bullet trajectory analysis that shows the path of the bullets didn't match the wounds of the victims. It all seems strange and can easily lead to speculation from many people. Over the past few years, as the case has been investigated and fought in court, new events have surfaced this year. YNW Melly has been fighting his case frequently this year, but it came to a stop in early April of 2020 when he had gotten COVID-19. He and his legal team had asked to be released on house arrest, but this request was denied. The pandemic has halted a lot of progress when it comes to hearings and court dates for YNW Melly's case. His next court date is being held on January 28th to discuss Bond. YNW Borland was released from prison May 23rd, 2020 on Bond and was placed on house arrest. Many people believe that YNW Borland's release will lead to YNW Melly's release soon, but he is still in prison as of today. This case has a lot of people torn on YNW Melly and YNW Borland's innocence. Maybe they did it. Maybe they didn't, but as 2021 goes on, more information is bound to be released, so make sure if you guys want to stay up to date on any more news, you hit that subscribe button. Let me know what you guys think about the case down below. And feel free to check out our other content. We post twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays. Thank you guys for watching. Speaking about protecting our kids, it's something that we hear more and more about. Teachers getting caught having inappropriate relationships with students. A lot of people may find it confusing because the age of consent in Nevada is 16, but the law is different when it comes to teachers and students. Michael Becker of Las Vegas Defense Group is here with an explanation. Can you explain what this difference is? Yes, and the law applies not only to teachers, but anybody who works at a school. In essence, notwithstanding the fact that the age of consent in Nevada is 16, a teacher or an employee of a school cannot have sexual relationships with a student regardless of age. That's really interesting because I think some people get confused with that. Now, if a teacher does behave inappropriately with a student, what are the consequences for that teacher? 
Well, there are consequences for the teacher and the student, but the teacher could face administrative, civil, or criminal legal problems. The teacher could get fired, suspended, they could get sued, and they could also get prosecuted criminally. Now, what exactly, what type of sexual harassment complaints against teachers are most common that you're seeing? Well, we're seeing everything ranging from relationships that carry over from the classroom to outside of school where teachers are uh, texting with students, meeting up with students, having unwanted physical contact with students, to situations where there's actual uh, sexual activity, including intercourse going on between teachers or school employees and students. Now, you mentioned lawsuits before. If a student it feels that they are harassed or involved in an inappropriate relationship with a teacher or someone that works at a school and they do their parents they want to file a lawsuit what do they do how do they they go about that well i mean obviously if a student is in distress and they're in a situation in a school where they're feeling discomfort the first step might be to go uh, either to your parents or to the principal's office and make a complaint after that, um, a lawyer could actually bring a lawsuit against either the teacher or the school district or oh, both. Okay. Now, let's take it from the other side. Let's look at it from a teacher's perspective. What if you're a teacher and you are accused of having an inappropriate relationship with a student and you are innocent? What's the first thing that you should do when you find out about this? Well, it, it's really important that you that a teacher either contacts their union representatives or an attorney because a teacher has the right to have representation quite uh, prior to questioning both by the school and by law enforcement who will ultimately take over these investigations some really really good information thank you so much for more info give las vegas defense group a call they obviously have the answers that you need 702 defense or you can visit their website um, right there on the screen there you go we're going to take a break we'll be right back prostitution is legal throughout the state of Nevada, except for Clark County, where Las Vegas is located, and Washoe County, which is where Reno is located. A lot of people come to Las Vegas and they're under the false impression that prostitution is legal everywhere. That's not the case. However, for a first time charge involving prostitution, we're often able to get those charges reduced to something like a trespass charge or even dismissed. It's not uncommon that we can get those charges dismissed. So if you have found yourself in a situation where you thought prostitution was legal or otherwise you got arrested by an undercover law enforcement officer posing as a prostitute, call us at 702 Defense. We'll talk about the facts of your case and we'll see how we can get your charges reduced or dismissed. When you're moving money around all these different ways, trying to make it seem seasoned, you're also probably doing like tax evasion and stuff like that too. Cause I mean, I don't know, you got all these chunks of money going places that- 
Oh, listen, they can hit you with money laundering. They can hit you that's, with wire fraud. That's what I mean. There's, there's these peripheral fraud. crimes that are, that are happening. Is there a conspiracy two people involved? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually, I think it has to be three people. Three. But, but it doesn't. It, it really makes no difference at all. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, listen, they're going to come up with a crime that you fit. Mm-hmm. The, the, the laws are so liberal at this point. For instance, they were trying to hit me with like 40 or 50, I think it was like 50 something million dollars in uh, uh, 50 or 55 million dollars like in, in uh, money laundering. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know, what money laundering? Like to me, money laundering was like drug dealers uh, trying to take dirty money and then put it in the bank and then somehow or another say that they made that money doing something else. Uh-huh. And I was like, what money laundering? I had money wired into the bank, and then I took the money out. And they, were, they were like, right, every dollar you take out of the bank that's dirty money is money laundering. I'm like, what hell? How else was I going to get the money? They're like, it doesn't matter. The moment you convert it to cash, it's money laundering. If it's, if it's ill-gotten funds. Well, I mean, the money laundering for $55 million is like a 30-year life. I mean, 30-year sentence. It's outrageous. So even this thing, the down payment fraud, I mean, that could be considered money laundering, yeah. couldn't it? They could, it, it could money, money laundering, bank fraud, wire fraud, because you're doing this in order to get the bank to wire money to the title company so that you can make that money, yeah. wire fraud. Yeah. You're like, you know, you, you would think, what, I didn't know that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're gonna get you on, on, you know. They're gonna get you on something. You're you're breaking multiple bank fraud related uh, charges or bank fraud related uh, laws at that point. Yeah. So, you know, I guess when you have so many charges hanging over your head, you're gonna to have to plead one of them because yeah, if you go to trial, I mean, that could be game over. They're gonna get you. It's 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 over. You can't go to deal. You can't go to can't go to trial on these things. Mm. You just can't do it. It's just stupidity to try and go to trial, especially if you're guilty. Look, if you're not guilty and you go to trial, you got about a 50% chance of being found guilty. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, people don't realize that, but the, the federal, all of the federal statutes are in the government's favor. Now, if you were in the state, the states are more reasonable. The feds will put people, they can put people up there that you told Ben that I said this. You won't testify, but Ben can testify what you told him that I said. And you're like, that's hearsay, right? That's perfectly legitimate. So Ben and four other people can get on the stand and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tyler said that Matt said this. Mm-hmm. And guess what? That's, that's okay. It's okay. And you're going, what the hell? I've never talked to this guy. And I didn't tell Tyler anything. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. We got four guys that are going to say you did it. And the fact is, is that most people feel like if you were indicted, you did something wrong. I, I, know, I know a guy named Andrew Levinson, when they were doing, going through voir dire, you know, voir dire is, is the, the process that they go through to determine if someone can sit on a jury. While they were going through all of his jurors, one of the jurors 
when his defense lawyer stood up and said, look, can, can you be impartial, sit on the jury and be impartial and judge my, my client? Uh, the actual juror said, I don't know. Most of them say, oh, of course, of course. They know that's the right thing to say. He goes, yeah, I don't know. And the guy goes, he goes you don't know? Why don't you know? He goes, well, he was indicted on 54 counts. He did something wrong. <laughs> that's how most of them think. They think if you're sitting in that chair, you did something wrong. And that's true. You may have done something wrong. The real tragedy of the system is this, is that you may have done something wrong and you'll get found guilty. And at that point, all the jury has done is said, yes, your honor, we believe that he broke the law. And they get up and they leave. They don't get to determine what your sentence is. If you polled most juries, 99% of them would be like, yeah, he broke the law, but you know, it's a white collar crime and he'll probably just get probation. It's not that big of a deal. It was a couple hundred thousand dollars. Nobody got hurt. He's going to get probation. Of course, a month later, two months later, they read in the newspaper, the guy got five years or he got 20 years or he got 10 years. And then they go, oh my God, he, well, I don't understand. What's the big deal? I mean, he was, if you'd seen the, what he did, it wasn't a big deal. Right. That's why you don't get to make that determination. What's going on YouTube? Come back at you another video. So we got some breaking news. Rapper OMB PZ has been arrested for the shooting that took place in Atlanta recently. If you didn't hear the news, Roddy Rich and 42 Doug were on set shooting a music video. Three people ended up being shot. There wasn't many details at the time. There was nobody arrested. Now, OMB PZ has been charged. I'm going to show you what his um, charges are. He's been arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, as well as possession of a firearm during a felony. So, o OMB PZ clearly going to be facing some serious time during this incident. Three people were shot. Nobody lost their life, thankfully, but there was multiple injuries. Um, OMB Peasy now, a lot of people on the internet reacting to this all over his Instagram. You see people saying free OMB Peasy. Um, sad situation. We see this all too often. Hopefully OMB Peasy is not guilty of the crimes he's being accused of. Because if he is, there's a good chance he's probably going to go to prison for quite a while. Um, got to be smarter. Got to move better. Got to stay out of the streets in 2021. There's nothing left in the streets for anybody. He's claiming his innocence, though. Um, be sure that you at least give him the um, benefit of the doubt that he's innocent until this all plays out in court. Let me know what you guys think in the comments, though. Hit the like, subscribe, share. Leave some feedback. Make sure you ring the notification bell, too, if you're subscribed. So you get updates my future videos when they drop. Before you leave, 
Please take just one second too to click the link. I'm going to pin as the top comment. It's going to take you to a dope artist out there trying to get his YouTube channel monetized. He's almost there. Please click the link and subscribe. It costs you absolutely nothing. I definitely do appreciate you watching though. Peace. Because now we're looking at two different guidelines. We're looking at 2S1.1 and 2S1.2 and trying to see if we can group these and base these on an aggregate under Rule D. They are both listed there. But as you will learn later in the broadcast, it doesn't necessarily mean that when, some, when two counts are listed as groupable under Rule D, that you are going to use Rule D for grouping those counts together. However, in the first 10 counts of 2S1.1, if you are applying relevant conduct correctly and you're using your expanded relevant conduct, you know that when you go to the 2S1.1 guideline for the first time, your expanded relevant conduct is going to aggregate the value of the funds laundered. And that is the primary determinant of the offense level under 2S1.1. How much money was laundered during this offense? So when you go there for the first time, you're going to aggregate the total amount of laundered funds. That equals $2.5 million. And therefore, you have grouped counts 1 through 10 under Rule D. Now let's take a look at counts 11 through 15, violations of Title 18, Section 1957. This guideline, 2S1.2, also considers the value of the funds laundered. This guideline is also listed as groupable under Rule D. So when you go to 2S1.2 for the first time, you are going to, using your relevant conduct analysis and your expanded relevant conduct, you are going to aggregate again the value of the funds that were laundered in counts 11 through 15 for a total of $150,000. Now, because both of these offenses are listed at Rule D, and when you consider relevant conduct, when you are looking at, let's say, 2S1.1 for the first time, the court could make a determination that the 2S1.1 counts, in addition to the 2S1.2 counts, are part of the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan as the offense of conviction, which would allow you to aggregate all of the funds laundered in all 15 counts. So the court could determine that they are part of the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan, and the value of the funds from all 15 counts should be added and applied to the guideline that produces the highest offense level, which in this case is 2S1.1. So there we see a different example where you're using two guidelines that aren't the same but are similar where you can use that to aggregate the conduct under one guideline one time. Now I want to jump in here and make a point off of that point that you just made that 
Just because a guideline is listed at 2D1.1 as being groupable or subject to the expanded relevant conduct doesn't necessarily mean that you can group all of those counts together. What I mean by that is this. What you have to do sometimes is look at and evaluate the, the individual guidelines mm -hmm. and determine what is the characterization of the money involved. Right. For example, if you have two counts of conviction, one being a fraud count at 2F1.1 and the other being a tax count at 2T1.1, you have to examine those guidelines and what is the, the characterization of the money in those guidelines. The loss definition at 2F1.1 is the value of the property taken, damaged, or destroyed. Mm -hmm. Well, the determination for the money or the tax loss at the tax guideline is different. There are any number of formulas that you have to compute in order to determine what the tax loss is. So thinking back to the rule when applying um, or grouping counts pursuant to Rule D, you're going to be applying one guideline one time. Well, in a situation where you have a fraud count and a tax count, how are you going to aggregate the amount of monies involved in both of those counts and then plug that into one guideline? Well, and the simple answer is you're not able to do that because the two loss tables, if you look at those two guidelines, are also different. And so there's no mechanism for applying one guideline one time based on the aggregate amount of monies in, in both of those counts of conviction. On the other hand, um, just because a, uh, an offense, excuse me, is listed as excluded from grouping at Rule D mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it can't be grouped pursuant to some of the other rules, A, B, or C. So having said that, maybe we should move on with the discussion of some of our other grouping rules. Exactly. One thing that we need to point out before we get to grouping under rules A, B, or C is that the operation of these grouping rules differs from the operation of grouping under rule D. We have repeated again and again that when you're grouping multiple counts under rule D, you apply one guideline one time. Well, grouping under rules A. Gabe's in California. I'm curious as to why you condemn the use of credit cards for everyone in every situation. It's kind of like I condemn the use of a cigarette. Cigarettes don't kill everybody that smokes them. But they are good for no one that smokes them. That's why. I'm 37 years old. I make 90000 a year. I'm on Baby Step 6, and my credit score is 815. I have four credit cards, four of which I use regularly, based on which one gives me the best rewards at particular places. I pay the bill in full at least monthly or every card. Why shouldn't responsible individuals such as myself use credit cards? Because you're not. You're delusional. You are more responsible than the average cat. I'll give you that. But 90000 bucks a year doesn't make you rich. And those points, you know, I've met with thousands and thousands of millionaires. I never met a single millionaire. I said, Dave, you know, I made all my money with my airline miles. 
Dude, I got I got one percent back on Discover. I mean, let's do the math on that for a minute, okay? You run a hundred thousand dollars worth of expenditures through your Discover card. You know what you get? A thousand dollars. You want to explain to me how that's a wealth building method? That's dumber than a rock. Well, I'm, buying, I'm, I'm spending the money anyway. Yeah, I know, but all of the studies tell us that the lack of friction, the lack of emotional friction, causes you to spend more when you use plastic than when you spend cash. So, uh, Gabe, you can do whatever you want, but your judgmental butt little email, I can read between the lines, you Pharisee. Uh, you go do whatever you want to do, dude. But millions and millions of people have said... I've had enough of credit cards. They have not been a blessing to me. They have been a curse. You spend more when you use them. You spend 12 to 18% more when you use plastic than when you use cash on the typical purchase. If you go to a vending machine, it's a 178% increase in sales for plastic users versus someone actually puts a dollar into the little dollar eater. When you go into a fast food setting, Quick serve restaurants for my friends in the business. A fast food setting. You roll into Mickey D's, you spend an average of 37% more when you use plastic than cash than cash buyers do. Because when you lay cash up on the counter, you emotionally go, ouch, I just spent money. And something leaves your possession in return, you get something back, like a hamburger. Have you ever thought about the fact that Rachel Cruz brings this up? When you put your credit card on the counter, they give it back to you and your hamburger. There was no visual trading going on here. If you trade something for something, you recognize that a transaction has occurred. But where you give them something, they give it back to you, and they give you their stuff. No visual transaction has occurred. Now, I know that's primitive, Gabe, and you think you're above these primitive things, but you're not. These are behavior processes. And personal finance is 80% behavior. It's only 20% head knowledge. Now, you're probably not going to go bankrupt because you're conservative and you're legalistic and everything else. And you've got your little financial plan figured out. So go do your plan, dude. It's fine. I'm fine if you go do whatever you want to do. But I am 100% sure after having worked with millions and millions and millions and millions of families over the last 30 years, 5 million families have gone through Financial Peace University. We've sold 15 million books. 16 million people listen to this show. Now, what does that say? It says... Credit card's not working. And I think we're going to look back in a decade or so and look at the credit. Remember when you were a kid, any of you old like me? Your kid, everybody smoked. And then they decided it wasn't healthy, so they had smoking sections in restaurants. Remember that? And as if the smoke didn't leave the smoking section and go over to the other section. It was the dumbest thing. They had smoking sections on airplanes. 
I'm old enough to remember that. And before that, you could just smoke on an airplane. It's like a tube full of smoke with wings. But gradually, society went from the 1950s or 40s with Clark Gable or whoever with a cigarette hanging out of his lip in every movie or Frank Sinatra or whoever with a cigarette hanging out of their lip in every movie because that made you cool. It went to where the cigarette isn't cool anymore. It's just trashy. Because people die from it, and it's pretty much nobody likes it anymore. Society has kind of looked up and goes, cigarettes kill you, they're stupid. Why in the world would you smoke? Now, people do still smoke, and if you smoke, I don't care. I'm not mad at you. Nevada has this wonderful statute under NRS 454.351 that's commonly referred to as ITS. And what it stands for is possession of drugs not to be introduced into interstate commerce, which sounds really strange. But the beauty of the statute is that just about every offense in Nevada involving narcotics is a felony where you could be looking at state prison. ITS is a misdemeanor. You may face no jail time at all and you can have your record sealed after only two years. Most commonly, negotiations to an ITS involve cases where someone goes to a pool party um, and brings in a small amount of drugs or they're pulled over in their vehicle or otherwise drugs are found on their person. Most commonly, Um, these negotiations are offered to defendants with very little criminal record. But the important thing is that if you plead to a misdemeanor ITS instead of a felony prosecution, um, you can avoid the consequences of a felony. You might be able to get your case dismissed if you complete a drug class. Uh, You may have to pay some fines, you may have to do some counseling. The bottom line is, if you've been charged with a felony drug offense in the state of Nevada, and you're trying to keep a felony off your record, call us at the Las Vegas Defense Group, and we'll see if we can get your charge reduced to a misdemeanor ITS so that you won't have permanent consequences on the day it happened. Now I showed this photo first as it's only gonna make sense if you see this picture first so you can kinda compare these other photos to this first one. Now YNW Melly does say that this was a drive-by that happened. And as you can tell from where everyone was sitting, The only ones affected by this was Juvie and Sack Chaser somehow. Borland and Melly ended up coming out of this perfectly fine. I honestly have no idea how that even happened, seeing as some of these pictures the car looks like it got absolutely trashed, but still only Bortland and Melly came out of this without a scratch. And sharing these next pictures, you could basically see all of the angles that the car was hit from. As you could tell, it's very, very real. And if this situation was caught on camera, 
it probably would be something that would not be allowed to be shown to the public as you can just tell how serious of an incident this truly was. Something this serious? It's surprising that the court case is not being, you know, shared as much to the public as we would think. The law enforcement is very unsure of what even happened in this situation. They're very unsure about this incident that went down with Melly and Bortland as they actually ended up taking around 40 minutes to get help for their friends apparently. Now apparently when this all went down, YNW Melly and YNW Bortland I guess sat there at the scene for around 30 to 40 minutes or something before taking his two best friends who obviously needed some medical attention as soon as possible to get help. Instead of calling for an ambulance or something along the lines of that, YNW Melly actually decided on driving to the hospital himself for whatever reason. And that is still another reason why they're leaving YNW Melly in lockup, as they actually really want to know why he didn't just call for emergency help, as that is what would make the absolute most sense, but he for some reason didn't. And I can understand where YNW Melly is coming from. Honestly, there was a, probably a lot of adrenaline and fear going on in his head. And honestly, I probably would have froze up if I was in his situation as well. So you can't really, you know, go at him for that. And I really do hope we get to see YNW Melly let free very soon. As I do believe it has been time for him to be free or at least be put on house arrest for the time being. He has been sitting in lockup for I don't even know how long now, two to three years. And I think he deserves to at least be on house arrest. If you do think that as well, let me know down below in the comments, and also if you enjoyed the video, leave a like on it. Anyways guys, it has been District Trending, and I'm out. Peace. Nevada treats rape and sexual assault very seriously. Penalties can include up to life in state prison and lifetime sexual registration. But the good news is that here at Las Vegas Defense Group, We've had tremendous success helping people fight these cases. You may be the victim of false allegations or an innocent misunderstanding. You may be wrongfully accused. Unfortunately, this happens all the time. We invite you to call us 24-7 at 702-DEFENSE and tell us your story. We'll see what we can do to get the charges reduced or dismissed. Many defendants also express a great fear of speaking in front of a courtroom. Do they, do they, does it have the same movement for you if they take the time to write out their narrative and their introspection and what they've learned from this process? Or do you 
only value the allocution statement at sentencing? Um, I've seen it both ways. Uh, I think anybody who stood in front of a federal judge to be sentenced should be nervous, right? I mean, that's, that, that's the proper emotion. Um, so if you're not nervous, there's something wrong. Um, so being nervous and writing it out and reading it can be just as powerful. And I've seen that several times. I had a case the other day where the defendant couldn't read it. She started breaking down. I'm like, would you like me to read it? Yes. Would you like me to read it out loud? Yes. So I read it out loud. Um, I, I know there's some, there are some judges that, you know, can't tolerate a tear in the courtroom. I'm not happen to be one of them. It's not that those are bad judges, but I understand that it's a very emotional process. And so if you need to write it out, great. If you can't write it out, that's great. I even had a woman who she was terrified and nobody, government, prosecutor, probation officer said she could ever really talk in public. And so what they did was part of her allocution was trying to show, here's where I've come from. Here's the house I was raised in. This is the miserable place that I still reside. Here are these issues and here's my kids. Um, and they just had her narrate it at the attorney's office so that, so that that PowerPoint that they sent me on a thumb drive beforehand allowed her that opportunity to talk because she couldn't say more than yes or no to the U.S. attorney, the probation office, or her defense lawyer most times. And so finding a way to address that, whether it's in a written form or standing up and speaking, you know, this is not the presidential state of the union. You don't have to act like it's memorized. I think more important is that it's heartfelt. Have you, does that, that sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you received a video type of recording. Is that an, a, an appropriate uh, delivery method then for an allocution statement is through video? I think it can be. I, I think it'd be the outlier, a really unique situation. This particular defendant uh, had some issues that that she was never able to really speak out. And, and that kind of put her in, their argument was that put her in the situation that she was in to be manipulated for the crime that was there. So I think it can be, and I think it, it can be part of an allocution. Um, I, don't, I don't think any of them want to turn this into a 60 minutes program, but for individual, every case should be individualized. And so in an individual case, if there's something somebody wants to show me in the quickest and most effective way is to have a five minute video with it narrated by different people to explain the situation. And they send it to me beforehand. I got a thumb drive on my desk right now for a sentencing tomorrow that I'm going to go back and watch. Uh, and look at the things they want me to, because that's the most effective way for the the defendant to tell their story. Now, obviously, the U.S. attorney is going to get a copy of it too, but it's 
I'm willing to look at something to, to, to allow someone to argue their issue. Can you describe a situation where you went into a hearing, a sentencing hearing, with one idea of what you were going to impose <clears throat> and received an allocution at the hearing that caused you to reassess either upwards or downwards at the, at the hearing itself. And so obviously you and I have had this scheduled for a little while, so I've been thinking about those precise issues. Um, literally this week, uh, I had one where I upwardly varied over what I thought I was gonna give when I walked in. Um, I told my staff I was gonna give one thing and, and I ended up giving an additional 40 months it was, a, uh, it was a child pornography distribution and production case. And I, I asked a series of questions when we walk in um, about the guidelines, because that's the first thing I'm supposed to calculate. And so I asked the defendant, have you had an opportunity to the review the PSR? And he said, yeah. But from the get-go, um, it was a negative impression, you know, so most people understand that federal judges are given an enormous amount. Hey, what's up? This your boy, Big Man. You already know what it is, man. So let's get right to it. Okay, so today we gonna be talking about Fabio Foreign. Now, Fabio, man, it looks like he done ran into some trouble. It looks like he was in New Jersey, minding his business, and then the long arm of the law caught him. Now, I can't say that he was minding his business because from the story, it sounds pretty crazy. It sounds like Fabio Foreign was getting into it with the law immediately like as soon as they stopped him and started talking to him it seemed like Fabio Forum was on one now for those of you who haven't figured out yet Fabio Forum got arrested now the story is pretty crazy and before we get to the specifics do me a favor make sure you hit that like button make sure you hit that subscribe button and man let's get it all right now that we got that out of the way let's talk about this fabio foreign situation mm -mm -mm. so it's looking like fabio foreign might be doing a little time right when he was having a little bit of success in the rap game now you might be asking me what do you mean now fabio foreign is most known for being a collaborator with pop smoke you know being a collaborator with drake being a collaborator with a lot of big names nas like he's got some some joints under his belt, man, and it looked like he was he was on the ups because he just dropped a song called Self Made that was doing relatively well on YouTube, right? Well, Fabio Foreign, I guess he ran into like a random traffic stop, or it went from a traffic stop to a uh, jaywalking ticket to a weapons charge, man. So let's get into the story. So Fabio Foreign was in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And it looked like things went all bad when an officer approached him. Now, from the story that's being put out there by several different reports, it went like this. Now, the story starts off like this. It says, a loaded handgun fell from his jacket as rapper Fabio Foreign fought Fort Lee police who nabbed him during a foot chase 
near the George Washington Bridge, authorities say. Maxie Riles III, whose Fabio form, allegedly left his car running and basically just left it in a no-parking zone, all disrespectful, like while he went into a city bank last night around 7.30. Now, this is according to somebody named Captain Ricky Murkovic, and it sounds like, you know, basically... Fabio Foreign and folks who have never been to New York and the Northeast like that, man, people do this all the time. They'll leave their car running in the front of a business that they're going inside and block all the traffic and everything, man. It's like a common thing. And most people wouldn't understand. I know the first time I seen it, I was like, man, you're just going to leave your car all disrespectful like? And it looked like Fabio Foreign, according to this report, was on that type of time, right? Now, a Sergeant Howard Ginsburg requested that Riles' driver's license as he approached the vehicle and asked whether he was getting a ticket. Okay, so basically what they're saying here is Fabio Foreign, after leaving the city bank, was going back to his car, and that's when the officers asked for, for his information, you know, and started, and then Fabio Foreign replied asking if he was going to get a ticket. Now, they're saying that instead of complying, Fabio Form simply walked away and the sergeant stayed with the running vehicle while backup officers uh, tracked down a jaywalking Riles a block away. So they're saying that Fabio Ford, after the, the officer asked him for his license, once he, it was, he was sure that it was Fabio Ford going to that car, he asked him for his license and Fabio Ford just, you know, brushed him off and walked away, and they're saying that a block away, somebody else, you know, started to come, like backup officers or whatnot. Now, this is where the story gets really interesting. So, they're saying that the officer that came up as backup tried to intercept Fabio Form and told him, hey man, could you stop? I want to speak to you, and Fabio Form just basically kept it pushing, man. He was like, nah, man, I'm walking. So, he's walking away from his car. He's walking away from the officer who originally asked him for his information when he saw it was his car. And he's walking away from the officers who are trying to intercept him. And he's like, nah, man. So he asked him, the officer allegedly asked him one more time, like, hey, man, could you stop? And he said Fabio Foran looked at him, ignored him, and continued to walk away and started headed towards this spot called the Modern Luxury Apartments on Park Ave. Now, then they said they tried to grab, well, the way it's written, it says the officer grabbed him in the parking lot, and it's misspelled. They're saying the officer tried to grab him in the parking lot, and as they tried to grab him, a loaded uh, twenty-five caliber handgun fell from Fabio Ford's waistband and the officer and the officer noticed as it was falling and it hit the ground that there was a defaced serial number on the weapon. There's nothing more horrible than the sexual abuse of a child, except perhaps for those cases when somebody is falsely accused of it. In this area of the law, more so than in many others, there are many cases of false accusations. Um, there are many cases of innocent people who are being accused of sexual misconduct with a child and arrested and prosecuted 
and tragically convicted. It is very imperative in a case like this for the defense team, the defense attorney, the defense investigator, to investigate everything about the accuser who's making this allegation. We want to know, first of all, has this child made accusations against other people in the past? And have those accusations proven to be false? We want to know, does this child have a reputation for telling stories and making up lies? We want to know, does this child have behavioral problems? Uh, does this child have a motive, uh, a bias and a motive uh, to make up allegations and stories against this particular adult? We want to pull the child's school records. We want to pull the medical records. We want to pull the counseling records. What we find is a portrait of a child who does have a history of lying and who does have a particular motive uh, to fabricate a story against our client. And when that happens, obviously that will cause the uh, prosecution and the police to rethink their case. The police are going to take the child at the child's word uh, and not scrutinize the allegation. Uh, so uh, for this investigation to take place, to uncover favorable evidence that's going to support the person accused, that's really a job of the defense attorney and the defense investigator. Uh, and if they don't do it, nobody will. A and tragically, uh, the failure to investigate thoroughly these sorts of allegations has led to many people across the country being wrongfully convicted. As in like personal side, I got a sequence I, I learned how to do and go get 15 personal credit cards with only like five inquiries. Mm. <laughs> well, I need an explanation. Well, before I, I, I want the explanation on that, but I, I'm, while you're saying this, and like, how does one grow the limits on their credit cards, right? Because like sometimes, like you can have a credit card, you pay it off, and like you actually have to go in and try to increase it. But sometimes there'll be a, uh, a situation where the company will say, oh, "We've increased it because of your good standing." Is there a strategy to grow it to double it and triple it? So when it comes to growing your credit card, like I tell people is that you want to put everything on them. I'll take, like, if you're going to work credit cards, take a few of them, like, because I teach how to get massive amounts. But if you only have a few, what you want to do is is put everything. You should never use a debit card, mm -hmm. right? And this is the example I tell people. I say, listen, if, if you're walking down a dark alley with 10000 in your pocket where they robbing people at, who money you want in your pocket? Yours or mine? Yours. yours. Exactly. <laughs> so every day you go out and you swipe in your debit card with, with, with your hard-earned money, your hard-earned money versus, and you put it at risk. We all know how fraud and how high it is now, right? So every day when you go out and you're using your debit card and you're putting it online and you're making purchases, you're putting your money at risk. So when you put your money at risk, why would instead of put everything on your debit card, I mean on your credit card, put everything that you spend on a credit card and pay it off, not go buy and buy whatever you want, 
the money that you would have spent out of your debit. Then you pay your credit card back off. Pay your credit card bill a few days early, two, three days early, but pay your credit card back off. And not only are you leveraging and putting somebody else's money at risk, you also get incentivized for using it. So everything that you spend should automatically run off of an actual credit card. I run everything that I spend off a credit card. And so like that usage increases it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you when you keep maxing it out, like if you can figure out depending on what you're doing, like with me, we'll run it as like I, I, I specialize with really helping entrepreneurs. Like we all have to learn how to make money ourselves. How do we turn our credit to cash? How do we grow our businesses? So if we're going to use and grow a business, I'm going to use my car. So like I max my card out on ads. Hmm. Right. I know Facebook ads. Facebook ads, things like that. I also built a relationship. Man, y'all got me talking. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. No one's listening. (laughs) um, I built a relationship. I built a relationship um, with a guy at a watch store. And he would resell watches. Right? So he had the, the opportunity. He was like, yo, you know, it only take me about 7 or 14 days to resell a watch. People come in all the time, trade it in. You know you get hit when you go to trade the watch in. So they're not going to give you full value. Well, he says, listen, if we buy it the same night, I can get it for what they paid before my store puts it online and puts it in the system. We can buy it for the same price. So what we would do is literally, I gave him, I let him hold one of my Platinums. He would buy the watch when it came in that night resell it because for the the value of it he already was the known for selling watches he resell it for the value i'm getting credit on my credit card for <laughs> how much the watch costs we started with twelve thousand. we didn't did sixty thousand. we didn't did 14s 24s and literally built it out maxing the card out now my credit card on on, on like that platinum i got is two hundred thousand dollar limit But it's just information and being able to seize the opportunity. And, you know, that was one of the things we had a good relationship and trust coming to play. That ain't something you can people can duplicate. So I don't really speak on that a lot because that's not something you can duplicate. But it's just things that happen. Just knowing. Yeah, just knowing. So so now let's just go back a little bit. So how do we acquire the multiple cards without having so many inquiries? Because that's, I mean, I, I do anything and it's like. You've got an alert. I'm like, oh, <laughs> damn. <laughs> yeah. Is that, um, man, so. <laughs> so, no. Uh, look, we here. Um, man, it's really for the culture. <laughs> hey, listen. I'm going to tell y'all, listen. I ain't going to be telling people, right? Yo, so, but no. <laughs> Um, (laughs) this is is one of the greatest of all yeah so (laughs) what we do is that we gotta understand right I'm gonna break it down to y'all is that we gotta understand that banks have rules right I remember going to people I'm not I'm not gonna hold you I remember going and I was I was in credit and I was getting good and I'm going to try and figure out how they do funding because I'm like yo I don't believe in no man fishing for me right you're not gonna go and and, and fish for me. I want to learn. Montrell Danelle Williams Jr., better known by his stage name Pooh Shiesty, 
is a rapper from Memphis, Tennessee. Even though he's only been making music since 2017, he's one of the hottest up-and-coming artists in hip-hop and has racked up millions of streams on tracks like 762 God and Back in Blood featuring Lil Durk. He signed the Gucci Mane's 1017 label in April 2020 and is in a good position to be one of the next big stars out of the South. However, like many promising young rappers, just as Pooh Shicey's career was getting off the ground, he was arrested in connection with the shooting that could potentially put his career and freedom in jeopardy. The shooting took place in Bay Harbor, Florida on October 13, 2020. No one was killed, but two victims sustained gunshot wounds. Pooh Shicey and his associates were arrested and charged with armed robbery, aggravated assault, battery, and criminal theft. The case is still ongoing, and the full story is yet to be revealed. But there is surveillance footage of the shooting that has been released to the public. Let's take a look back at Pooh Shicey's criminal history and his career up to this point. Pooh Shicey was born in Memphis, Tennessee on November 8, 1999. Compared to many rappers, he had a fairly stable childhood with both his parents in the picture. However, his father, Lontrell Williams Sr., was a rapper who went by the name Mob Boss and was the founder of a Memphis-based record label called Mob Ties Records. Both Pooh Shiesty and his father grew up in South Memphis and were involved in the streets from an early age. In 2004, Montrell Sr. was charged as an accomplice in the murder of a radio DJ who was found dead in her apartment. He wasn't the one who committed the murder, but he was somehow involved. In an interview with Fuchsia's TV, the rapper claimed his father was always in his life, except when he was locked up. What about your, your pops and shit? Was your pops around? Yeah, most definitely. Pops been around from the start unless he was locked. You know what I'm saying? It's the only time he won around. On the track Monday to Sunday featuring Lil Baby and Big 30, who shiesty raps, is Gladys raised a savage that say I shoot like my daddy, referencing his father's criminal past. The cover art for his track Day One also features a picture of the young rapper with his father dressed as old school Chicago gangsters, machine guns and all that. Although the guns are probably just props and the outfits just costumes, it shows the kind of father-son relationship they had. Fans and journalists have covered an old photo of Pooh Shiesty wearing an ankle monitor at only 11 years old. The rapper has been quiet about exactly what he was charged with at such a young age, but whatever it was, it was enough to get him expelled from school and sent to an alternative school. At age 16, the rapper left Memphis and relocated with his mother to Pflugerville, Texas, but he returned to Memphis two years later, which is when he started rapping. He and his childhood friend Big 30 started releasing music in 2017, but it wasn't until he dropped his breakout hit, Shiesty Summer, that things started to heat up for Pooh Shiesty. His song At It Again was remixed by Moneybag Yo in March 2020, and he caught the eye of Gucci Mane not long after. He signed a 1017 Records in April 2020, and the two collaborated on the track Still Remember in June 2020. The duo reunited on Who Is Him for the 1017 compilation album So Icy Summer, which was released on July 3rd, 2020. He continued this impressive streak of hits by releasing the track Back in Blood with Lil Durk in November 2020. 
which became his most streamed song to date with just under 30 million plays on Spotify. But just a few weeks before this track dropped, Pooh Shiesty found himself in some serious legal trouble. Video surveillance footage released by a Miami news station allegedly shows Pooh Shiesty involved in a shootout that occurred in broad daylight in a parking lot in Bay Harbor Islands, Florida. The footage shows a green McLaren, a Mercedes Maybach, and another Mercedes enter the parking lot and pull over. A group of men gets out of each of the cars, and at first, things appear to be calm. But all of a sudden, guns are drawn, and shots start going off. It's not entirely clear what set off the mayhem, but one man with a pistol and another with a Draco start firing shots. The camera clearly shows a man in a white t-shirt get shot in the ass and start limping away. He hides behind the vehicle and can be seen inspecting the wound while the others hop back in the car and flee the scene. The footage is pretty clear because the camera is pointing right back at the crew and the shooting happened in the middle of the day in a well-lit area. But it's tough to make out the identities of the men involved. Allegedly, Pooh Shitey's in the green McLaren, but it's not clear if he was one of the shooters or if it were other members of his crew. The incident has fans puzzled because at first, everything seems cool, but within seconds, it turns to gunfire. The footage shows a McLaren sports car, Mercedes Maybach, and another Mercedes pull into this East Bay Harbor Drive condo parking lot. Men from the vehicles eventually get out and meet, and then this. The man in the white shirt has a pistol, the man in the black sweatshirt has a longer gun, and at about the same time, they begin firing before retreating back to the Maybach. The fancy getaway cars speed off, and one of two victims then hobbles to the car. Rumors are circulating that it's a drug deal or sneaker deal gone wrong. The victims drove themselves to urgent care in Miami after the shooting. One had to undergo surgery. However, they have both made a full recovery. One of the victims told police that they were there to sell Shiesty a pair of Air Jordan 4s. Don't come over here. Don't come. No, I'm coming. I'm coming. I mean, you were there for me. You were on your knees for me. <laughs> I'm coming. I'm coming. I don't care what they say. I'm the president of the United States. <laughs> Go where I want to go. <laughs> oh, man. Free my grandma. What's up? It's a hell of a handle there. Free my grandma. It's going to come out. It's going to come out and tell out. They're they so afraid of Trump. They're not going to put anything like really heavy out until he die. 
after he die, that it's going to open up. It's going to be all kind of stuff going on. Yeah, man. Oh, man. It's going to be, oh, man. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. Carol Sessoms. What's up, Carol? Appreciate you. T. Hill in the building. Larry Banks. Imagine Rudy Giuliani, you know, after, you know, after seeing him with that little incident where he was blowing his nose and wiping his stuff and touching his mouth and all that. Imagine him, imagine going over his house for dinner. Imagine how he do, how nasty he is. How he would probably be picking all in the pots and eating you know, tasting the food, double dipping and all that stuff. And, oh, man. Ooh. Wouldn't go nowhere near that dude. Just look nasty. It's Bushy, yes, absolutely. R.I.P. David Dinkins, former mayor of New York City. Already. Neil forever shine. Sup, Neil. Chrissy Black. So, fam, at uh, seven o'clock. I'm going to turn this thing all the way up on the second topic. I'm going to turn it all the way up on the Willie D Live channel. We're going to talk about this, this guy who was stopped by the police and this white dude stopped by the police threatened to shoot the police twice after they threatened to stick the dog on him. He 
doing a lot of fidgeting. All, all he is moving his hands, pulling his pulled, jerked his hand away from the police, touched his gun, and then eventually he drove off. They gave chase. And as promised, if more information was to come out in the Mo3 investigation, I will keep you guys updated. But Northern Texas man indicted in highway killing of Dallas rapper Mo3. Now, if you don't know, Mo3 real name is Melvin A. Noble. He was gunned down in the middle of the day on Interstate E35 near the Dallas Zoo. Now, let's get straight to business. Now, the man that's accused. Kiwan Dontrell White, which is 22 years old, is the man accused of killing Dallas rapper known as Mo3. He was just indicted on this murder charge this week. Dallas County Grand Juries indicted Kiwan White in the November shooting death of rapper whose legal name is Melvin Noble. Now keep in mind, when I make these videos, I'm not giving my opinion on the situation. I'm giving you the details either from the attorney generals or from the news stations that's reporting the news that's getting it directly from the authorities in that particular city. Now the article continues to say Noble 28 was gunned down in the middle of the day on Interstate 35 in Oak Cliff near the Dallas Zoo. The killing sparked a manhunt and prompted police to sound an alarm on the city's spike in homicides. White was arrested nearly three weeks after the shooting. He is in federal custody on a federal charge of possessing a firearm in violation of his previous felony conviction. He is scheduled to stand trial in federal court in April and faces up to 10 years in prison if convicted. Now, if convicted of the murder, White could be sentenced to as much as life in prison with the possibility of parole. Now, the Dallas authorities have said Noble pulled over on the road and tried to flee his car, but the driver of another car also stopped and chased him with a rifle. The other driver shot Noble several times before driving north on the interstate. Images provide the Dallas police show the shooter wore a ski mask. Now, Dontrell White's lawyer in the state court, George Asford, said he hasn't been able to speak with his client since he's in federal custody. Now, Bree West is his lawyer for its federal charge, and based on this report, she was not able to be reached for any questions or answer. Now, as of right now, this is the latest update on Kiwan White has actually been indicted. Now, for those that don't know what an indictment is, an indictment is a formal accusation based upon available evidence that a person has committed a serious crime. If there's enough evidence to prove that the person has committed the crime, then they will be indicted. And to wrap this up, just for people that may not understand, Actually, what an indictment is, the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution requires the federal government to seek an indictment from a grand jury in order to prosecute someone for a felony or otherwise infamous or serious crime. Since an indictment 
comes after a grand jury, but typically before an arrest, it may be sealed. However, much time is needed to prevent the defendant or other suspects from fleeing, destroying evidence, or otherwise evading justice. Now, if any more information comes out on this particular case, be sure to keep you guys updated. Make sure you like and subscribe and drop a comment. And be sure to turn on the notification bell so you'll be one of the first to get the updates. Peace. And go move their stuff. Bring it back to you. They make them pay a deposit. They run it real nice. You can leave it at Home Depot. I leave mine's at Home Depot in the parking lot. Yo, you know what? You know, some people they'll spend, you know, a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars on an on an investment property that's not gonna give you three fifty a week. No, it's not. But you can buy a two, three thousand dollar car. Turn them cars into real estate, baby. Better than real estate. And I was just telling I was like, I ain't gonna lie. Do you ever get an economy car and sit on it and nobody wants it? Haven't. I mean I I like like a lot of my mentees used to ask me, like, what's the best car to get? I'd be like all of them going to go. You just want to do the, when it comes to economies, you want to do the ones that never really break down. Like? Like Toyotas. Come on, when you seen a Toyota broke down on the side yeah. of the street? Come on, bro. Them things last forever. Especially a Prius. And they good on gas. You fill it up with $20, that thing get you all week. You know what I mean? So, I just look for Toyota Priuses. Man, it's just super Hyundai Sonatas, man. Because it's, I just put it on my insurance. Go ahead and drive it. Something happens. You don't, you don't care. Don't you can care, care less. You know what I mean? And then you can, I still put full coverage on all of mine just to take a little baby check that I'm going to get. But it don't matter to me because I already know. I know, like, if it, if in the rare occasion that it, before I make my money back, it crashes or something like that, which it doesn't. But if it were to, it's not a big deal. I only spent 2000 Like, for, I'm not saying just you have 2000 for. I'm talking about I use my finance cars yeah. to get me up to where I was making enough money to go and buy cars cash. And then I dud it, I dud it over and over and over to where I got so many economy cars, they gonna keep going and going and going. Now, when they happen to do break down or something like that, I get them fixed. And then I keep them going. And if I if they done for, I already made my money back times 20, 10 already. Yeah. And it's not a big deal to me. So I just, you know, sell it to the scrap cars, get money off from the scrap people. Tell it to them, then go get another one. Like, it's not even a big deal because there's so many of those cars. Y'all got to understand that they make a, a, a new model of every car every single year. Y'all know how many cars out here? Y'all know how many people go get something on uh, Labor Day, on a Labor Day sales, and they can't handle it no more? They want to give it away? Mm -hmm. Let me give y'all a couple games. Let me give y'all a couple games before we get out for this thing. So, you talking joint ventures. You got people that can't handle their car notes no more. You know a way to make money with it. You take over that payment you get the money with it. Or you can offer your people who don't know how to make money for themselves, give them money every month to use their credit, get a finance car, so you're helping them in two ways. You're getting yourself money and you're helping your people who don't know how to make money and giving them solid money. That's a joint venture. Learn how to solve problems. If you start learn how to solve problems in this game, you will never be broke because it's so many people that need cars for stuff, different reasons. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll be getting slingshots. You'll be like, damn, why would I need a slingshot? Because you can drive it for yourself and then you can make money on it hourly. Mm. What, don't run out a, a slingshot for the day? Run it out by the hour. 100 an hour going to make you a killing. Get three of them. They're going to get them three at the same time, I promise you. It's so many plays. It's like, get you trucks, use fetch truck. You know how many people need trucks for moving? If you're that guy who just give it to them, look, I don't care if you beat it up a little bit. Now I don't give a damn about this truck. Move your stuff. 
these dudes gonna rent them every damn day. <laughs> Y'all know how good these trucks. I'll be like, yo, I'll be so surprised. I'll be like, I was like, yeah, just you can you can ding it up a little bit. I'm not gonna make you pay if you ding up the back or uh, they'd be like, bro, I'm taking us to work every day. Y'all know how much money I make off these trucks, man. Come on, man, don't stop. Don't get me started. So solve problems, baby. And then you'll you'll go a long way. Help your people, do the joint venture method, mm-hmm. broker deals with other people who who are in the rental car space. Maybe they might not be as good as you in marketing. Maybe they might not have the platform that a Dave Sham has. He could say, Look, I got my rental cars going out for a hundred a day. Who need that? You feel what I'm saying? Or maybe they can't, they don't have that influence. So if you do have it. You can help them out, give them a minimum daily payment that they'll make, a minimum that they'll make every day when the car goes out, and then charge your fee on top. You know you got that clout. Go ahead and use it. Solve mm-hmm. these problems. If, if they, you know you're the go-to guy, be that go-to guy. Mm-hmm. Be able to just do good business, though. Have integrity and be consistent. If you be consistent in any business, they'll never forget you. So every time they come in town, they're going to send all their cousins to you. They're going to send their sales to you, and they're going to make sure – that they rent with you because you were consistent and you do good business. If you do that, I, that's why I never worry about having customers because they come into, they dying for me. They hit my Google page. They hit my, my, my Instagram. Mm. They hit my business Instagram. They hit in, uh, my Toro, <laughs> my hire car. So I got them coming from all streams. You know what I'm saying? So that's the thing. And clearly word of mouth is passing around as well because I do good business. And I think of myself as a friendly guy and I, somewhere where somebody will want to come and feel comfortable getting the car. They know I'm not going to trick them and charge them extra fees. I'm only going to charge you for what you do. I'm not going to charge you for what I want. I'm not going to say, oh, I've been had this scratch. Let me get them. No, no. Right. We're going to be detailed on every time. And I'm going to make sure everybody's happy. That's why I want. That's all I care. Everybody needs to be happy. I love it. Bitch, I appreciate you, my brother. Yep. Um, this was just a, a wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm really probably gonna go get an I eight tomorrow. It's gonna be so dope. We're gonna pull up back to back. Once you do that, I'm like, look, how much is the rap? Because you gotta wrap it. Oh right? yeah, yeah. So get a good rap guy. And let me tell you another trick on the raps. Go to these. If you got, or if you are like a person, federal court. That's in the eastern district of Virginia. That's the wrong district. So my responsibility, or the responsibility of my attorney is in response to that lawsuit to say, this is not the proper venue based on the statute because we don't have any connection with the Eastern District of Virginia. And you would file a motion to dismiss the case for improper venue, and the case would be dismissed. Now, a way to respond to that would be either to say that there are connections with the Eastern District of Virginia. So I've said, I live in the Western District of Virginia. But what if this accident happened in Richmond, Virginia? Then Richmond is a proper venue because venue can be based on where I'm from or where things happened. So if things happened in the Eastern District and I live in the Western District, you can choose which one you want to sue me in. That's your choice as, a, as the plaintiff. So I can move to dismiss. The plaintiff might respond, you're wrong. Uh, the accident happened in Richmond, so we can stay here. Another way that you will be studying venue, or another attribute of venue that you're going to study, is transfer. So you may have been sued in the Eastern District of Virginia, in my example. 
But what if I prefer the convenience of litigating in Charlottesville? I can file a motion to transfer the case from the Eastern District to the Western District. But I can only do that if the Western District would have been an initial proper venue to begin with. So venue and transfer are important concepts that you're going to learn. So these topics collectively, personal jurisdictions, which I cover first, other professors may cover second, subject matter jurisdiction, venue, and related to venue is change of venue or transfer. Those are the topics that deal with where this case is going to be litigated. You will likely spend the first half of civil procedure covering those topics. At least in my course, that's what we get right into up to the uh, fall break in October is getting finished with venue and transfer. Again, other professors may do things in different sequence. It doesn't matter. Uh, everyone takes their own uh, approach. So that's dealing with the where a lawsuit can be brought. Now another topic that comes next typically in the sequence is something called choice of law. Now this is going to be covered with varying degrees of detail by different professors and I'm going to cover it only briefly but you'll hear something called the Erie Doctrine. You'll learn more about that uh, in your first year courses. Uh, but the bottom line is, once we have started litigating this case, which law, as, as between state and federal law, are we going to apply to this dispute? And the bottom line here is, if we have a simple car accident where I'm alleging negligence, that's a state law issue. There's no federal law of negligence that's relevant to this dispute. But if I've got some procedural law, that needs to be applied to this case, that's going to come from federal law. That's basically what Erie Doctrine is about. It can get much more complex than that, but the choice of law uh, aspect of the case, federal versus state, is something that you may touch on. There's another aspect of choice of law that I don't really touch on, most civil procedure professors don't touch on, or touch on it very briefly, but it has its own course, which is called conflicts of laws. And that's when you're trying to decide which state's law applies to a dispute. Is it Virginia law? Is it Texas law? Is it Kansas law? There are principles that are taught in their own class called conflicts uh, that you can learn. Those are typically not covered in the civil procedure class. So that's choice of law. Now, getting into the how portion of the life of a case. The next step here would be something referred to as the pleadings. The pleadings are the physical things that you have to do and file and create to initiate a case. So once you've made this determination we're going to be in federal court. It's going to be in the Eastern District of Virginia. That's where I'm going to file my lawsuit. What does that mean? All right? 
what you have to do to file a lawsuit is you have to file a complaint. So you have to draft a complaint. What does that entail? You'll look at complaints in your first year civil procedure class. There are rules that govern what a complaint must say. It has to set forth the jurisdiction of the court, the claim that you